Hey everybody, this is your host Ian, just with a little update about the podcast. For this episode in particular, we highly recommend that you check out our YouTube page for some accompanying videos and images that go along with the storytelling in the interview today. In addition to that, please keep rating us and commenting on Apple Podcasts. That's going to make it so that we can still bring in cool, interesting people for interviews. And in general, if you want to see images that are linked with our interviews or just all around cool ocean information, please check us out on Instagram. Now, our guest for today is Phil Gardner, an all-around interesting diver, endless stories, an amateur wreck hunter, and and author of a book called Diving the Palisades Peninsula. Please enjoy. Good to go? Welcome to Ocean Folk Podcast. The podcast where we speak to people who the ocean speaks to. We explore the stories of those who explore the ocean. All right, welcome to Ocean Folks Podcast, and I'm here today with Phil Gardner. He is an author of the what I consider to be the best diving guide for Palos Verdes, California, and also, I would say, a staple of the Southern California uh, diving community, at least in my life. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think the book is one of the culminating things, your uh, kind of dedication and kind of giving back to the community of diving. So, Phil, uh, how did you come to basically decide to write a book about diving in Palos Verdes? Well, I'd been posting my dive reports on the internet, diver.net, and even Usenet before that, and always got a lot of nice comments, and people would come up to me and say, hey, are you max bottom time? <laughs> I'd get that all the time. That was just my internet name. That, is, that was your internet handle, max bottom time. Right. And the other one that I really like is Pacific Coast 101. Yeah. That, that was uh, when I first got on the internet, I had uh, AOL, and they assigned me a, um, an email address, and it was something like PGA418152 or something like that, and I could never remember Jeez. it. And at that time, I, they, I didn't know anything about the internet. I didn't know how to change my, my name or anything. And then when I got... Um, I think it was uh, uh, Pacific Global or something like that, and then Yahoo and everything. I just put Pacific Coast 101. I thought, you know, at least it sounds like you're going along the coast. Yeah, no, I've been corrected sure. a couple times. People said, yeah, but that's actually Highway 1. 101 doesn't go right along the coast. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> Pacific Coast, I don't care. Wow, man, there's always somebody who's going to comment about right. something. So I think I think you were telling me before, you've been diving since 1989. I, yeah, I got certified in 89. I was free diving for a couple of years before that. And uh, my first wife and I uh, used to go out free diving all around Palos Verdes and Laguna and La Jolla. But Palos Verdes was, to me, worth it. It's challenging because of all the goat trails. There's so many around the peninsula that sometimes the, I didn't even know the names of some of these coves. I would just look down and see a trail. I thought, oh, there's some kelp offshore. Let's go out there. So we do these every weekend. We were out doing this all the time. And then uh, one time we were at Christmas Tree Cove and saw a bat ray and a leopard shark. And I didn't know what they were. I just thought shark and stingray. So we were trying to avoid them because we didn't want to get bitten by these sharks. Or stabbed <laughs> right. by the stingray. Because <laughs> right. stingrays aggressively attack people, you right. know. Yeah. And all I knew was, you know, potentially dangerous. Stay behind them. So we'd, we'd snorkel up behind them. I didn't even free dive down with them because I thought we might get attacked. But after every time after we would do this and have good visibility and actually see things, 
I'd go to the Long Beach Library and look them up and find out what they were, and I found out that these two animals just ate small crabs. Went, so for, oh, you, for you kids out there, a library is a building with books. This was before the Internet right. existed. So. I always consider the Internet the world's greatest library. Before that, you had to actually walk up and down rows and look in card files to find what you wanted and then look through a book, thousands of pages, and it was almost impossible, but occasionally you could find something good. But I would sit in an hour in the library, sometimes four or five hours after a one-hour dive, just to learn what I saw. Now I can go home and look it up in two minutes. So you know what's crazy? This is actually one of the things um, that I think you probably don't realize your uh, impact on the greater diver, diver community in Southern California. One of the greatest things is if I don't know something, I can ask Phil. <laughs> like, <laughs> I go or I go look at your page, and I'm like, oh, Phil's taking a picture of that. That's exactly what that is. Or um, I, and you know, hopefully at some point I'll get to talk to Mary, but your, your wife, Mary, she did the whole thing on, uh, squid. Um, yeah, the squid, yeah, that, that was a lot of work. <laughs> it was amazing. It was long. In fact, well, she made one version and she thought it was so long that she ended up cutting it down about, she cut out about 10 minutes of it just because she thought nobody would watch it. I actually liked the long version, but. <laughs> well, yeah. And just so it's, it shows the, in, Correct me if I'm wrong. From what I remember, it's been a while since I've looked at it. It shows the entire life cycle of California market squid right. from the embryotic stage all the way through. How the heck any, did you do We didn't get any that? hatching, but we got everything else. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, we would go down to vets and take pictures of the eggs, and then she collected a few eggs. She worked, used to work at Harvard UCLA. She was a medical researcher. So she would go in after work, and we would go down there and look, put them in a microscope. And just watch these little embryos in the egg swimming around. and It, it was great. And then she, we didn't have a photo microscope. So we would just put a little point-and-shoot camera up to the eyepiece and photograph those. That's and, through a point-and-shoot. Yes. Unbelievable. <laughs> she got some good stuff. So you guys have been just so active um, uh, in the diver community. Like I said, uh, your photos are absolutely fantastic. I think the one drawback of your book is actually, I don't think, I think you have... It just doesn't actually portray. When I see your photos, or maybe you've gotten better since this. Oh, yes. But your photo, okay, maybe that's much, it. I got a much better camera. Plus, the printing on this is oversaturated. I, I don't like the photos. When I see them, I always I cringe when I see the photos. Well, I, I don't think they do your photos justice. Even, even um, you know, even the giant black sea bass stuff that you're turning out now, even the GoPro video and stuff, it has more dynamic uh, coloration than I think this book does. That being said, the book is a gr is uh, a fantastic visual tutorial right. on how to access some of the best diving in Southern California. That's great about electronics. I mean, a GoPro. If you had told somebody twenty years ago you can have a two inch camera that'll shoot four K video, they say four K. What's that? <laughs> I and mean, you you can do so many amazing things now. And the camera I have now is about like another anchor I carry it around. It's huge. So let's talk but about the camera. Better. Let's talk about your camera real quick. What are you What are you shooting with these days? Right now, I, I just got a uh, Nikon D850. Ooh. It's a full-frame camera, and I've got it in a Subal housing. It's aluminum housing that weighs a ton. Oh, you got the Subal. Oh, geez, yeah. those things are... <laughs> if I drop it, well, I've got flotation on it. I actually did lose... My last camera was a D3X, and Mary and I were getting in the water. I got in first. And I, we've got carabiners on the side of the boat to clip our cameras off. And I went to unclip mine, and I was fumbling. I, I lost one of my fins, and I reached down to grab my fin, got it, put my fin on. Then I reached to get my camera and realized, oh, where is it? Oh, no. I dropped the camera. Oh, no. And, uh, fortunately, this was a used one I bought from Kathy Church. 
but it was oh, still expensive. No. But they, the retail on them is you know up to eight twenty thousand dollars for these things. Oh my So I God. and we had bad visibility. We were at the crane off Haggerty's. So I just told Mary, "See, ya. I dropped straight down, and I tried hard to make sure I went straight, didn't kick at all. I dropped down, and there was probably two feet visibility on the bottom. Oh, no. I looked for ten seconds, and I saw the camera sitting on top of a rock. I got lucky. Oh wow! Okay, that <laughs> that's be... the only time I've not clipped off before I did anything else. See, that's that's the thing. I I jumped in. So you know, they always tell you to hold your mask when you jump in the water. I, there was a long period of time where I was like, whatever, like, yeah, when does that ever happen? <laughs> Lo and behold, on one of the clearest days I've ever been, 60 feet of water, jump into the water, splash, the water comes back in, rips the mac off, mask off my face, it falls into the water. I'm like, okay, no big deal. I literally can see the bottom from the boat. Like, it was one of those days. It was a sandy bottom. Right. Get a new mask, drop down. I looked for 30 minutes. I couldn't find the thing. Like, the fact that you found the camera, although bigger than a mask, is pretty awesome. But, yeah, and that visibility, too. I mean, I just oh. got lucky. Jeez. But even, even I've got uh, almost 2,500 dives now, and we were diving with our friend Andy uh, yesterday and then again last Monday. On Monday, I did a back roll and forgot my fins on the boat. And it was, <laughs> I mean, we still do stupid things. It doesn't matter how, how, many, how long you dive. I argue that there's a point where you get past, like, you just think you know, and you start pulling dumb stuff like that. Mary actually T-touched our back plate. She has a little signs to say weight belt because at least more than two occasions we have jumped in the water without our weight belt on and realized, oh, I can't think. You're still <laughs> rocking the weight belt. Oh, I'm yeah. way past the weight belt. I'm all I'm integrated. Old school. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, um, our mutual friend Scott, he was all about the weight belt. He could never get into integrated. I like it because the integrated BCD where the weights are in it it's one less thing I have to prep before I go in the water. I started off, when I first started diving, I had a little back plate and wing and just diving 72s and aluminum 80s and just, you know, a wetsuit, throw the tank on over your head. So not even a BCD. Break. No, well, it was, yeah, just a little plastic backpack. Yeah, I've seen those. And then I got a job at a dive shop working part-time, part-time, about uh, 45 hours on the weekends. And uh, so I ended up, instead of getting paid sometimes, we would just take it out in gear. So I ended up getting the weight integrated BC. I had a decor rig, which is supposed to be a tech BC. Yeah. And of course, when I tried to use this tech, I put doubles on it, ripped back out of it twice. I had to sew them back on and it ripped out again. Oh my God. But uh, I had integrated weights and lost pockets both times. And uh, now they have them with little clips, little plastic clips. So supposedly you won't lose them. So I still know people who have. And so, I found weights. So when did you, so if you started diving in 89, when did you actually start doing uh, technical diving? Uh, probably maybe in the mid nineties, I met some people okay. I was working at the dive shop who were telling me about all these wonderful sites they were looking for. And I thought, Oh, I should do this. And I had a friend, uh, he became a mentor for several years. He's the one who basically taught me everything he knew about tech diving. And I ended up, um, Jeff Smith at Pacific Wilderness got a hold of some, uh, 120s. The company was going out of business, and they bought about 30 120s. That sounds like a really, Jeff Smith purpose. They're purchase. like big water heaters. They're and I enormous. Said, wow, I've been diving 95s, and I hate 95s because they're so heavy. But those are longer and thinner. Maybe I should try one of those. So I bought one, loved it. Went back the next day, bought another one, and then I ended up buying two more, making a set of doubles. Oh my gosh! Which I actually used. I I dove the double 120s at Marineland a few times. Oh my god! Bike, and it vets a lot, and people would take pictures of me because. I'm 6'3", and these tanks made me look small because there's just massive water heaters on my back. For those who don't know what Phil is talking about when he says Marineland, that is the modern-day Terranea Resort. 
and it is known as one of the worst hikes down. <laughs> And I can personally attest to this. I, I have I consider burned it one more of the calories. easiest ones in Palisades. <laughs> you're, but you're a madman. Okay, so let's. You were talking about goat trails, and these are like just footpath trails that people have haphazardly put down the side of these hills in Palos Verdes to get to these sites. And you were telling me that you would carry four tanks down. Yes, we got tired of doing a dive, climbing back up, changing tanks, and going back down for a second dive. So my first wife and I decided to start, just start carrying four tanks down and gear up on the beach. And we did that one day at Christmas Creek Cove. And I thought, you know what? If we leave two tanks on the beach and someone wants to steal them and carry them back up the hill, more power to them. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> ever did. Nobody touched our stuff. Yeah. We would swim out, do a dive, come back, change tanks. And then one day we did that and we had the four tanks on the beach, put all of our wetsuits and everything else back in our gear bags. And I told my first wife, Marilyn, I was going to climb up the cliff. I would carry... The tank on my back and the gear bags go up to the car and then I would come back and get some of the other stuff. This hill, when you're carrying, even just snorkeling is bad enough, but when you're carrying gear bags and a tank on your back and a weight belt, it's it takes you 10 minutes to get down and 30 minutes to get up. Oh, I, I got to the top and just like I started walking back from the car, I look and here's here's Marilyn. She was 5'3 and sometimes overweight. She was a little overweight then. She's carrying three tanks. She had one on her back and one in each hand, and oh my God. I was I was so impressed. I could not believe she was doing that. Uh, that that is that is an amazing act. I wouldn't attempt it. The fact that she completed it is impressive. When we used to free dive there, when all we would sometimes we wouldn't even we would snorkel without a weight belt. We would just go down with a wetsuit, yeah. mask, and fins, and it was still hard to get back up that trail. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is not uh, it is not forgiving topography up there. No. My so is this, a, is this about the time that you decided that you wanted to get a boat? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I dived uh, Palos Verdes for years before I got a boat. I actually didn't mind. I didn't mind because I figured it was a lot of work. I was a new diver. I didn't know anything. In fact, my first wetsuit was from a body glove, and it was loose in the neck, but I didn't know. You know, you get in the water, and cold water would rush down your back. You'll yeah. just shiver for a while. But I didn't know any better. I'd never worn a wetsuit before. So I thought that's what California was diving. I didn't, you know, I just thought you freeze, you shiver in California. I didn't know any better until I got a better fitting wetsuit. So you've probably seen a lot of things change in the dive industry as far as better gear, uh, just better knowledge to people. I mean, I, I think that's probably one of the most significant things from the 90s to now, from the early 90s to now, it seems like there's far better gear accessible. Right. And people know how to use it better. In fact, my first set of gear we bought used, it was from the late 70s, early 80s. I still have some of it in my garage, the old bottom timer and the old board-on-tube get-depth gauge. The board-on-tube depth. <laughs> so but this still, is a fact, basically... I still use it once in a while just to make sure it still works. But that's the crazy thing. Uh, you know, uh, our mutual friend Scott, I he tells me about the old, the old depth gauges. The, the, I think it's the board-on-tube. Where it's basically just open on one end, right? And a bubble you, that moves around. You watch the bubble that goes around, and it's like it's surprisingly very accurate. Basically, well, it's mechanical, right? right? It's physics, but it's hilarious because it's also hard to see sometimes because the the tube itself is just a little plastic tube that you know it gets old and yellow, and it's hard to see on the land. You can't see it at all, and you get underwater. But when you can, like, squint your eyes up to see it, it's amazingly accurate. And, I still use it once in a while just for fun, just to make sure it works. It's great. But I started off with, like I said, the small backpack uh -huh. and 
the old old gear. Then once I worked at a dive shop, I started. I got one VC, then another, then the tech VC, and then later I ended up because I was doing tech diving for a while. I went back to a backplate and wing. I've been using that for the last probably twelve years, fourteen years, like longer, maybe sixteen years now. I'm a big proponent of diving uh, a backplate and a wing. I feel like that is, you know, I mean, everybody, anything can work. I dove a, a vest style BCD for a long time, but I really do like my dive right wing. It's bulletproof. It's sturdy. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say I treat it nicely, right. but it treats me nicely. That's well, what I like. My favorite features. And I'm not trying to push around because I know anybody can dive whatever they want. And anybody could actually dive in any BC configuration and still be happy diving. Mm-hmm. But I was doing so many B sides with all these trails. I found the stability of the back plate. I didn't have the tank swinging around or hanging down by my knees yeah. or anything anymore. All of a sudden, it was like, hey, I can walk without a tank swinging. This is great. It's still heavy, but it's, you know, it takes six pounds off your weight belt. At but, least you don't have to deal the with the momentum of everything. Right. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. the The tank stabilizers on those are way better, and like especially said, if you're doing doubles. And I'm or using something. heavy tanks. Sometimes I use doubles. Sometimes I use single one thirties. And so I would end up tearing things apart. And BCs don't last forever anyway. They're just you know they're nylon and they tear up. And with the back plate, you you have a harness. It's just nylon harness, and it lasts for probably ten years. And when you need to replace it, it takes you know thirty minutes to put a new one on, put some D rings on. You have a whole brand new thing. The backplate never wears out, so it'll last the rest of your life. Yeah, that's that's the really cool part. Um, so, you you mentioned tech diving, so or I mentioned tech diving. You got into it in the mid '90s, and one of the cool things that you've also done is you've been very open and forthright with a lot of your dive sites, even some of the more rare deeper sites. And I kind of wanted to talk to you. You were the first, uh, I don't know if this is infamous or famous, but it depends on probably who you ask, but you actually helped publicize the location of one of our local uh, submarine wrecks, which uh, it was a German submarine that was taken on a tour after World War One. correct? Right. Yeah, help me with the history of this real quick before um, we... After the end of World War One, apparently Germany said they had seven subs left, I think it was five or seven. And as part of reparations for World War I, they had to turn them over to England. And England gave uh, two of them to the United States, and they would gave them to the U.S. Navy, and they would take them around the coast and then through the Panama Canal, go up and down the east and west coast as uh, bond drives for war bonds. Oh, people, wow. would, people would pay a dollar or whatever it was and go aboard and check them out and go, wow, a German sub, this is great. And then part of the agreement with England was that we would do that for, I think it was three years, and then we had to destroy them after that. So... Um, the U.S. Navy decided to make it a big, big deal. They took the uh, the mayor of Los Angeles and uh, reporters and photographers in the L.A. Times and took it out. They just meant to sit somewhere off Long Beach and sunk it. And said, you know, take that, you, you Germans, whatever it was. Little, little post-war yeah. uh, <laughs> propaganda going on. Exactly right. And for years, I met people at the dive shop who had they told me they'd been looking for it since the forties. Wow. And some of them would go out with anchors in an area they thought it was and drag their anchor back and forth on the oh my, bottom, oh just my. plowing, hoping to find it. Never did, of course. Oh, my God. And then other people, when Loran came out, they would use numbers and go out and search back and forth with fish finders, but never found it for years. And uh, some people actually did have the location. There was a fisherman who had it. And when he retired, he gave the numbers to my friend Andy. And Andy didn't know it was, he didn't, hadn't checked out, he didn't go out and meter it, but it turned out one of the numbers after I found it was those numbers. Oh, no so kidding. So some fishermen knew something was there, they didn't know what it was. He just thought it was a reef. Right. And, and he was like, I'm getting really the, good fish there off are so, this. There are so many fish there. 
Yeah. Now it's illegal. Well, don't tell to fish. anybody. Well, it's illegal to, in California to get fish for rockfish under 180 feet, and the bottom there is 185 to 190. So technically, it's illegal to fish, but there's there's fishing line on it. And there's a huge net on the stern, so people have uh, been fishing for years on it. Well, that's that's a big problem is ghost nets. It could just be a ghost net. Who right. knows? But it's, it's been there for at least when uh, Gary Fabian and Ray Arntz found it in 1983, yeah. it had the net on it there. Johnny Walker went down and took video of it, and you could see the net, and it's still there. And Oh, Johnny. Yeah, that's right, Johnny Walker. Uh, he, he, uh, he was a friend of mine. He, I hadn't dived with him. I've known him for years, though. One, my, ex, uh, my former best dive buddy was one of his students. Oh, okay. He, he was always trying to get me to sign up with his class. And I said, I can't afford it. The same thing. You know, I got a boat, just went through a divorce. There's no way I can afford this stuff. So I just, my, my mentor, uh, Tim Miller, was teaching me all these things about diving. So we just, we dived together probably five years. And he would make me do valve drills and everything else on the boat before we even get in the water. He just just to, to check you? Swimming. Yeah. He's like, he's, he just wanted you to prove yourself. He was a good teacher, but he was also reckless with himself. He, he had this goal. He wanted to dive to 600 feet on air, Ooh. even though he was trying to make certified. Uh, he Why got would four, you do that? Who knows? But he got to 400 feet once at the Matterhorn. It's, it's off of uh, Santa Barbara Island. Just a small pinnacle. And he went down to 400 feet on air. He told me he was so narked that if he took his eyes away from his pressure gauge, it would take a minute to focus again. He said he couldn't even see. So he would just watch his pressure gauge. And when he got halfway, he'd come up. And I oh said, my God, you're going to kill yourself just, doing that. That is the worst. In fact, my first wife, Marilyn, told us yeah, I want you to start logging your dive so we can write a book about you when you die. He, he thought it was a big joke, but ironically, he disappeared at Farnsworth one day doing another deep air dive. But he never made it to 600 feet as far as we know, but they, they never did find his body. And every time I've oh, gone I to didn't Farnsworth, know he passed. Yeah, every time I've gone to Farnsworth, I always look around for a red dry suit. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't know he passed. So I have, uh, a, I know another diver who used to work with him because he was with the, the longshoremen. And so uh, he was constantly nagging Johnny to go diving with him, but he never wanted to no. because this other particular guy was yeah, not. Yeah, Johnny was teaching IANTD, and then later he became a GUE instructor yeah. until they had the falling out with the East Coast, West Coast gang war things or something. But uh, Seriously, they, there was a GUE gang war and oh, I didn't yeah, hear when, about uh, it? When uh, Andrew, uh, I can't remember his last name now. I, I wish I remember his last name, but he... He became the training director for GUE. He's on the West Coast near in L.A. And he started doing things to promote his own gear. And he would make dry suits with um, wrist dumps, which, according to DUE, uh, GUE, is a no-no because you can't raise your arm in a cave when you're in tight spots. So they did not allow wrist dumps. But he was publishing that and saying, you know, I like these better and you know, pushing his own stuff. And then all of a sudden, the East Coast and West Coast GUE guys were arguing about gear configurations. So... They finally fired Andrew, and in fact, I had one of his old or had one of his old dry suits. But they had it was almost like these rap wars with East Coast and West Coast guys. And they were oh arguing on the internet, so it got it got pretty tiring. But it was entertaining for the internet. Oh, I'm sure. Well, but it's okay. We're getting way off into the weeds here, but <laughs> but it is interesting uh, for those who don't know. Uh, uh, GUE uh, Global Underwater Explorers. Yes. They're probably one of the most uh, popular and strict, I would say, and uh, has almost like a cult-like following in tech diving, right? I actually think it would have been a great thing for diving, and more people would follow it, except for the people who were posting about it on the internet, because they had a couple of spokespeople. I mean, that's true of everything, yeah. right? <laughs> but they, they had uh, Mike Kane in, in L.A., 
and just I mean they had some people on there who would just call people the worst names in the very world aggressive. for not agreeing with them. Very aggressive and, said, you know and very idealistic. Instead of just explaining, you know, why we dive this way, this works, this works better than what you're doing, this is safer, you know, try this. It's you're an idiot for doing this, and why are you? You know, they just scream at everybody basically. And Very just turned a lot of people away from it. And I never, I never understood that because uh, the the system is actually a very good system, right. and it's designed to allow people to safely do some of the most dangerous types of diving, right. in fact, where you're going deeper or with overhead environments, uh, cave diving. A lot of cave divers are GUE guys. Uh, in fact, but, they were formed because they had a rash of just numbers of people dying in Florida caves. And they said, we've got to do something about this. So they just, they came up with protocols that worked. And then that evolved into GUE, which I actually, I like their protocols. I agree with most of the stuff. I have the same gear configuration, but nobody could confuse me with GUE because I love solo diving and they don't allow solo diving. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I, I think you'll run into them at dive sites from time to time when you shore dive, right? And right. they're training. There's a whole branch of those guys who only train. Right. That's they never actually do the tech dives. They just train for tech in dives. In fact, I've known a couple of different groups around Palos Verdes who were doing that, and they always called it, you know, if you want to come, well, we only allow like-minded divers. That was one of their oh favorite terms. Oh, my God. Yes. What a horrific <laughs> there's, there's idea. Just, they really became snobs, basically. But they would post all of their videos of their training, and every single dive was the same, where they sit there and wave at the camera and show their perfect trim. But you'd ask them about what they saw on the dive, and they said, oh, we were just practicing our skills. And I was thinking, well, why are you diving? And they would charter boats. It's like the, the, most the most expensive synchronized swimming right. ever. And I thought, you could do this in a pool. Why are you chartering boats to go to the Channel Islands if you're not going to look at the marine life? Oh, that, and yeah, that, that blows my mind, right? The whole point of being able to dive like that is to go to environments And they're that you frog can't kicking 30 feet off the bottom so they don't stir it. And I thought, you know, it's great that you can be completely horizontal and frog kick, but why are you frog kicking when you have, there's nothing to stir up? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, so you actually published uh, the the numbers on the submarine, right? Right. And you, how did you find it? Well, a friend and I, I won't mention his name because this caused problems too. But yeah, yeah. We, we were best buddies for a lot of years. Um, he was also posting when he first moved to L.A. from Alabama. He started doing the same Palos Verdes dives I was doing going up and down the cliffs. And I enjoyed his dive report. So I emailed him one day and said, hey, would you like to come out? I've got a boat. You want to come out and I'll show you a few more sites. So we went out and I showed him a few different sites on the boat. And at the end, he says, is it okay if I dive with you again? I said, sure, sure, come on out. We'll go next weekend. And then I introduced <laughs> him to wreck diving, took him out to the Olympic wreck, which all of a sudden he fell in love with wreck diving. That's all he was interested in. And then he'd bring his wife out and one of his friends. So the four of us would go out every weekend on my boat. And then after a few years, uh, when they found the UB-88 but wouldn't tell anybody where it was, that became his obsession. We have to find it. We have to find it. So and you he, were willing to indulge that obsession. Oh, yeah. I, I wanted to find it, too, because yeah. these guys at the dive shop for years telling me, oh, they're searching for it and never found it. It was the elusive wreck for Southern California, basically. Everybody wanted to go to it, but nobody would claim they knew where it was. But now we knew people who knew where it was, but they weren't going to give up the numbers. So Ross bought the software. Originally, the software that Gary Fabian used, he said he was around, I think, four to $6,000 just for the software. Uh-huh. And so when Ross decided to do it, he bought some different software. It was only about $500 and got found a bunch of spots all around the Huntington Flats area and off Point Furman. And we would go out every weekend metering different spots. If we found something, we'd take turns diving down. We found a lot of pipes, <laughs> a oh, couple yeah. wrecks we didn't know about, and a couple of barges and things, and an engine, just different 
things that were dumped out there, which they were interesting dives. We found wolf eels, matrins, things that you don't usually see oh, close to shore. I still have only seen a juvenile wolf eel. I haven't been out to the African Queen and saw the big ones. They're gone. Are they? Yeah, well, I think you told down. me that. Yeah, somebody, re- well, they removed all the nets from the wreck, which is a good thing, but the wolf eels also left. <laughs> the oh. last couple times I was there, I couldn't, they were, there used to be three on there, and we haven't seen them since. Oh, that's a bummer. So they're out there somewhere, though. We, there are on different wrecks. In fact, somebody uh, told me he saw one on the Olympic. Oh, perfect. Which is a very common, I mean, that's a popular dive. People have been diving it for years. But uh, my friend and I would go out, and just, you know, we, that's all we did for years. Every dive was almost go out and find the UV88. And he had so many numbers we would try out, never did find it. And then he and his wife decided to raise a family. And they had a daughter and then later a son, and he sold his boat. So I thought, well, he gave up on it. Maybe someday I'll find it. So and, you were still diving coordinates after the original right. person who was right, because they pushing for it. Yeah, they were going to tell us, so we wanted to find it on our own. And we looked for a few years, didn't find it, but found a lot of other sites. And then when my buddy kind of retired, he didn't really retire from diving, but he just wasn't diving anymore. Right, and family. Boat. We, my boat broke down, so we were using his boat after that. And we looked for years, and then he kind of gave up. And I thought, okay, well, I'll find it someday. And then a few years later... Out of the blue, he just emails me and says, oh, by the way, I found the UB-88. I said, really? He says, yeah, last August. And this was in December when he emailed me. Uh, what? Yeah, he was my best friend. <laughs> what, you didn't tell me about it? Just, well, because I know you would tell people. I said, well, it depends on, you know, if you found it, say, don't give up the numbers. I wouldn't. But, you know, if I found it, I would certainly want to share it. He says, well, that's why. I didn't want you to know. But uh, then he started telling me it's in 230 feet. I said, no, it's not. I saw Johnny's video. I know the, the life that's there. You don't see these fish below 200 feet. And he said, well, it's, it's near the oil rigs. I said, no, it's not. We checked near the oil rigs, all those numbers out there. He started, he, to, play, he, yeah, he started he, to play games with you? He did. Oh, my so gosh. Said, oh, okay, well, thank you very much. <laughs> that was the end of that for a while. And then, So he uh, tried to basically send you on a goose, wild goose chase. Well, he didn't even want me to look. He, he just basically said, I found it, but I'm not going to share it with you. Sorry. Oh, wow, you were my best friend. Why would so, you even say that? I couldn't believe it. He, he, turned, he wasn't the person I thought he was. I still like him. He's a nice guy, but yeah. He hasn't been on our boat. Yeah. And so a couple months later, we bought our new boat, no pressure. And one of the first things we did was go out looking for it and couldn't find it. And then so I downloaded the original software that was $6,000, which is now freeware, which was great. That's a better deal. I liked it. So I downloaded that. And you have to anchor parts of the software onto places that are known like Angel's Gate and point from places where you can get the map and get the coordinates that are exact. So I looked around, and all of a sudden, I had a list of numbers. And I thought, well, some of these might be my buddy's numbers because we were looking at the same spots. And so I thought, I can't ask him, you know, if you check this spot or check this. So I ended up going out to a few of these other spots. And some of them were stuff we had already checked before, but I didn't know because he was doing all this work at home. Yeah. And then one day after this, it took months, probably six months of searching. Oh, my God. But I found three little spots together. And I thought, well, these are really close together. Did they drop? Is this more pipes or something? Because we just find big, you know, concrete pipes together. But it was just in a straight line. I thought, eh, maybe it's possible. But then I just looked on the big picture. I looked on the map, and I measured it, and it was exactly 10.0 miles south of where the Long Beach Navy base used to be. And it was in about 185 feet, and the UV-8 was 178 feet long. And I just started thinking, you know, I wonder, because I know how the military works as an Army brat. And they either do things quick, fast, and in a hurry, or very methodically. And I looked and said, you know what? This is exactly 180 degrees south, exactly 10 miles south of where the Navy base was. So I thought, let me check that out. The depth is right, and this sounds like something the Navy would do. So I went out and metered. 
we went over the top and I saw what I thought was the conning tower in 130 feet. It turned out it was the rockfish that are over the top of it. There's so many fish there. It was so thick that it looked like solid. Oh my God. And so the first time I dived it, I took a video camera out just to see if it was it. Yeah. And dropped down and the numbers I, I got were right on the conning tower. It was perfect. Oh I dropped down right next to it and looked at it. I can't believe it. I actually found it. So I, I did a six minute dive just recording. And the rockfish were there so thick. I really enjoyed the rockfish more than the wreck itself. Right. But I just wanted to prove I got it. So I went back up, and Mary was on the boat waiting for me. And she said I was talking a mile a minute. <laughs> so oh, excited. I'm sure. How excited were you? In fact, I was at the ladder. I didn't even climb the ladder. She was just recording me with her snap, with her point and shoot camera, recording video of me talking a mile an hour. <laughs> I was just so excited. And since I got home, I wrote a little dive report. I didn't post the numbers, but I, I wrote the dive report with the video. And I got probably 500 emails congratulating oh, sure. me and asking for the numbers and two negative ones saying, don't share the numbers. People will die on there. So, but I mean, people, people will do what people will do. Yeah. But, so, but I had the local boat captains who wanted to take charters there, wanted to take tech divers out. So I gave them the numbers first. And I had some friends in a club called the SoCal Tech Divers Club. Some of them were in dive vets. And I gave them the numbers so they could go out. And they loved it. They, they were going out every like every three or four days diving it. So I was happy that people actually got to see it now. And it turned out some of the other boat captains were taking people out. Eventually, Ray Arndt started taking people out, too. Yeah. So he saw everybody else making money off of it, so he decided to change his ways and take people back out. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, an, it's, a, it's a very unique dive site. Like, we don't get submarines on this, right. on this coast. And it's the amazing not a thing, thing is they sunk it January 3rd, 1921, and it's still sitting upright. It's, you know, it's metal is falling apart. The bow is falling apart. You see the, the uh, torpedo tubes, but the conning tower is still standing straight up. Wow, and that's amazing. And you see it go, it's a submarine. Wow, this is great. That's really cool. And I've seen a few videos on YouTube of some guys who weren't tech diving, but they would go down, they'd anchor on the numbers and go down to about 130 feet on good clear days and could see it. And they'd stop right there. They're about 35 feet above the conning tower, but you could see it. They go, well, at least we got to see the UB-88. This is That's kind of cool. I, I wouldn't, I don't, I think I just learned to tech dive, yeah. but. Um, it's hard to look at something right below you and go, I don't know. I, I'm going to go it, down and check it out real it, quick. That is definitely teasing the devil. Yeah. Uh, you definitely would want to go a little bit deeper on those. Right. So all of that is not in your book. No, that, that, was, <laughs> that, was, that was waiting for volume two, which I've been planning for a few years. Are you planning a volume two? I am, but. I've got uh, I've got quite a few new sites, but I've got 25 sites in the first book, so I yeah. thought I should get at least 25, and I haven't found at least 20. I think I found like 15 interesting sites since the first book came out. So I'm just waiting to find a few more interesting sites. But um, so in the second it. volume, are you going to do expanded to tech diving around Palos Verdes, or what are you thinking? Well, there's a few sites that are really good tech diving sites. But I don't know about the mass appeal of a book. I, I actually thought I would sell maybe a dozen copies of this book. I didn't think oh, I'd no. sell many. I, I've ended up, I think I've sold 500 or something, which is about 490 more than I thought I would sell. But that's good, though. I mean, but there is appeal, and I have to give credit. Like, um, with some of the kind of internet promotions and Groupon and things like that, uh, it's, it's good and bad. Like, I can go on about the, the problems with... Uh, teaching new divers through Groupon classes and bucket lists and things like that, that like that's an issue, but it has brought a lot more people into the sport. Right. 
and it has increased the popularity. And so I'm not surprised that it's sold that much, uh, even though it is a small geographic area. Right. There's a lot of people who want to really enjoy the other half of what Los Angeles has to offer. Because, you, you know, you have everything on land, but there's this massively interesting underwater area. That being said, Palos Verdes is only the small part of it, you know. Uh, but just what just what's in the book alone is awesome. That was another main main draw for me to even writing the book in the first place yeah. is I love diving Palos Verdes. It's, we don't always have the best visibility. Most of the time it's not very good, yeah. but occasionally we do get great visibility. But most people in, in this area go to Catalina or dive Laguna, and I did that myself. I, I was diving Laguna a lot. I go to Catalina, but you see the same things everywhere. If you go on the front side of Catalina, you almost can't tell whether you're in the underwater park in Avalon or at the West End because everything looks the same. You see the Garibaldi's and the kelp. You don't see as hardly any invertebrate <coughs> life. Occasionally, you see nudibranchs, but they're almost always Spanish shells or hermacentas. But you don't see a lot of different things, which I love diving in nice water and looking up and seeing the kelp. I love Catalina. It's great. It's beautiful. Yeah, but, 100%. If you are coming from out of town and you want beautiful California yes. water, 100% recommend Catalina. And there's a lot of great places you can see really cool stuff. But when the conditions are good, I'd prefer to dive... Palos Verdes anywhere in California. Yeah. Only because of the fact that you can go on a reef that's even some of the near shore reefs and some of the ones that are just 100 or 200 yards offshore, you'll see things you'll never see anywhere at Catalina or any of the Channel Islands. Even, in fact, a lot of it is almost like Point Loma. We have similar, similar reefs as Point Loma does, but Laguna Beach is the same thing. You're going to see the same thing every single reef. Well, I think uh, yes and no, and I'm going to kind of tie uh two things together here. I really like Laguna. I like the protective oh, I area. I think the variety of invertebrates and sponges and things like that has massively increased in the time that I've diving, right. been diving since it's been protected. I was wondering, and so I like that. Um, and I think, I think it's also just a great easy dive. Right. I do agree with you in the sense that like, the reef is not as expansive, and I don't think it's open to the ocean as much where you'll get random things coming right. in, where I think Palos Verde is 100% of that. Right. Have you noticed that the MPA in Palos Verdes has gotten uh, more rich with life since they've put it in? It was for a while. I've been diving the Point Vicente MPA a lot, Yeah, that whole area. And for the first couple of years, the rockfish came back that weren't there before. Right. And we were seeing, we would do like a dive at Point Vicente and see probably 10 different species of rockfish on one dive, wow. which we hadn't seen in years. But then in, I think it was 2015, we had a warm water blob that they said it kind of killed off a lot of life. Now every, yeah, we've got brown stuff covering the reefs and a lot of things have disappeared. They'll come back. I mean, it's, it's just a cycle. Things come and go all the time. That was, yeah. that was a, it was like a two-year period where the water was just super warm. And that's when we had, that, that was a crazy year. So warm, warm. Well, but for Palos Verde, sixty-four. Uh, yeah, but it was so warm that all the waters in Mexico got heated up, and that's when the kids and everybody who was surfing down in Manhattan Beach were seeing uh, juvenile great whites that would normally right. be off in Mexico had to come up north right. just to get the normal water temperatures. So people were having great white sightings like three or four times a week, not yeah. big ones. Right. Well, the juveniles you find them occasionally in the bay. Yeah. Especially off Manhattan Beach Pier, there's a lot of videos on YouTube of. 
you know, people out paddle boarding and seeing them right underneath them. Oh, yeah. And uh, Mary and I were diving the, the big pipe, the five-mile outfall pipe. I was going to bring this up. I, I, I remember when this got posted. <laughs> I, I was, I've never seen a great white. I've, I've always wanted to. I've never seen one. And when I first met Mary, she had, I think, 60 dives. She's just got certified about six months before when I started diving with her. Now she's, we've got, I think, 1,150 dives together or something. Wow. But we were diving the big pipe one day, and we were both photographing tiny things. We had our macro setups. And at the end of the dive, I start going up because I'm bigger than she is and I use more air. So I'm going up and I'm doing my safety stop. And I look down and I can see the sticker on her tank. And I see her folding her tank, but I can't really make out her that well. I was about 30 feet above her. And she comes up the line after she put her camera together and looks up at me and does the shark signal on top of her head. I went, what? You saw a shark? Like a leopard shark or what? What did you see? We got back on the boat. She said a juvenile great white was swimming along the pipe about eight feet long, just cruising along looked up and turned and came right to her and looked up. She said, I saw that Disney smile. It looked like the, the sharks. <laughs> you see oh, the yeah. Things. He just had this little toothy grin looking at her. And she said, I was ready to bonk him with my strobe if I needed to, but he was afraid of me. And he just turned and swam off. And I said, you don't know how lucky you are. That's amazing. That That is my ideal interaction with a, with a great white, is a juvenile, not too big. I mean, even a juvenile could mess you up. But... You know, not one where you're constantly afraid for your life, although right. I'm sure in that moment she was probably like, huh, but... It was a little startling, but she, oh, she, knew, she knew it was a juvenile and they don't eat mammals, so she she knew yeah. he wasn't going to attack me or anything, but still, you know, in bad visibility, they can nip you. Yeah, and a nip would be a bad, yeah, a bad a day. Nip, a nip from a great white is not a good thing. No, that's not what you want in your life. Uh, yeah, so that is one of your amazing... That is really cool. The best thing I've ever seen, I saw a... Uh, a thresher shark at Point Vicente one day in great visibility. I had a no next kidding. door neighbor. He was German and he he didn't like other people for the most part. He he took he watched my videos and saw my photos and wanted to die just because of that. So I told him to go over to Pacific Wilderness. I was living at Point Furman then. Yeah. And he signed up for a class, took his first class, and they were going to give him all the rental gear. And he says, No, no, I don't want rental gear. I want a new wetsuit. So he bought a new wetsuit, did his first pull session, didn't like the feel of a wetsuit, so he bought a dry suit. <laughs> he just wanted to spend money. Then he decided, I don't like some of the people in the class. I want to pay for a private class. I'm like, you're just throwing money away. So wow. he, he ended up getting certified. So I took him out diving a few times. On one of his first post-certification dives, I took him to Point Vicente. There's one spot where it's only in about 35 feet. I said, this would be a good chance. You can see some of the nudibranchs I see out here and have a good time. We started going down, and I'm looking up, and he's taking forever to drop down. Like, What's going on? So, you having a problem? He said, okay, I'm, I'm fine. So I drop down, I look back up, and he's taking forever. So finally, I get to the bottom, and I look up, and he's about halfway down, just going really slow. I look to my left, and here comes about an eight-foot thresher shark, most beautiful fish I've ever seen underwater, just cruising the reef, swimming over the top of the reef, cruising around. And this is the way I'd like to see a great white. I don't really want to do a cage dive where they attract them with, with chow. They, I'd, yeah. I'd like to see one in the natural environment where they're not looking to eat you. They're just swimming. Yeah. And I saw this thresher shark, big, beautiful, silvery, huge tail, just swimming along the reef. And I didn't have a camera with me. I'm just enjoying the dive. And I looked up, and Sven comes down, and I said, did you see the shark? No. So we go back up, and I well, ask him later what happened. I said, this is one of the best dives I've ever had. You didn't even look? And we got back up. I said, why are we going so slow? Were you having trouble clearing? He says, oh, no, my instructor told me you have to go down slowly. I said, no, I think he told you to go up slowly. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he missed out on what, at the time, was my favorite dive I've ever done. <laughs> that is hilarious. But you know, there's something about bringing a newbie with you every once in a while. Um, I, I helped to certify my cousin, and it was uh, just after she got certified. 
And it was her last dive in California before she went back to Florida. And I took her out to vets. And she was like, I want to see an octopus and I want to see a shark. And I'm like, well, vets has octopus. Good luck with the shark. Well, they have sharks too. Yeah, they they (laughs) have four-inch baby horn sharks if you want that. Maybe we'll see one. So we go out. We see an octopus. So she's like super stoked, which is great. And it was a dust dive, so it's getting dark. And I'm I'm letting her goof around with my GoPro because she's super excited and she's into the ocean. And all of a sudden, I'm just chilling, minding my business on a dive. And I look to my left, and there is an enormous, like, eight-foot shark that I don't know what it is. I, it, I can see it clearly. And I'm like, whoa. So I grab the GoPro, and I turn, and I just start filming. And my cousin is freaking out because she's like, you said there's no sharks here. You know, it's like one of those where you're like, you didn't promise this. And it turned out to be uh, one of the few sightings of a prickly shark right. that I've ever heard of, which and was you, an amazing dive. It became a small phenomenon for a while, too, because for the yeah. next couple of weeks, that shark was staying there. And people Hanging who saw out. your video were going out to see it. I never did get to see it. I went out once and didn't see it. I went out three or four times the next couple of days, and I didn't see it. But I saw other videos. Other people were sighting it in the same area. Uh-huh, yeah, so it, it was crazy. for a while. So it must be just expanding its, uh, its origin area or something and just right. checking it out or who knows what was in at that time. I was doing a night dive at Vets once during a squid run. Oh, yeah. and My favorite. The squid was just mating everywhere. And I was shooting video, and I had squid right in front of me mating and laying eggs. And I was holding the camera still trying to get some great shots. And my buddy kept shining his light at me. He wanted to get my attention. And I was kind of waving him off saying, yeah. wait, wait, I'm getting great footage here. And he did that three or four times. I kept saying, go away, go away. He finally left. I thought, good. So I got what I thought at the time was perfect video of this dive. We got back on the beach. He says, why wouldn't you look up? I said, I told him what I was doing. I was getting some great squid shots. There was a six-foot blue shark behind you that whole time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I never saw it. Amazing. <laughs> that's the thing, man. Uh, anytime you go in the water, especially vets, Veterans Park, that's one of my favorite dive sites. Um, I think that's clear if you see anything I post. <laughs> Uh, you can go in there. I've seen more cool stuff there than anywhere, but I guess it's I've, just time in the water. I've had great day dives there. I found oh, yeah. stuff in the daytime. People always say, no, no, don't go in the day. It's just a sandy desert. But unless if you're just looking for squid or something big, you may not see it in the daytime. But there's, I look for tiny stuff a lot. I look for nudibranchs and crabs and little things. There's a lot of stuff at vets in the daytime. I've had some of my favorite, I've had great night dives there, but some of my favorite dives at vets are in the daytime. 100%. And people overlook it all the time. I was one of the first, that same warm spell we were talking about, 2015, 2016, I think I was the first or one, at least the first one to open their mouth about it, uh, people to see when we had those giant Pacific seahorses that were there right. temporarily. I mean, it's just like what you wouldn't expect them to be there, but you never know. People, we were talking about this, see whales there from time right. to time in the right time of year around And even years. the tuna crabs come in every few years. They were in, you got some just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, the tuna crabs. We, uh, I actually went uh, with a buddy of mine, Alex, and we actually tried to cook them. Let me just, uh, <laughs> let me just uh, ruin your curiosity and surprise. It wasn't worth it. I was going to say, they're you know, two inches long. Is there much meat in them? There's not a lot of meat, and when you cook them, the shell is soft, and the flesh is kind of soft, and like... Basically a little mush soup when you're... Well, no, no, no. Okay, so let me just say, they taste good, uh, but there's just not a lot there. So if you were starving, sure, why not? But other than that, it's, you know, stick to the staples. My uh, my neighbor Sven, the German guy, is telling me about one night we were going to dive vets during a squid run. And one of our other neighbors said, oh, I love calamari. Will you get me some? 
I thought, oh, okay, you know, we'll pick up some of the dying ones after they've laid their eggs or something. That's what I thought we were going to do. There was a swarm of squid. Just the entire water column was full. Ben pulls out this mesh bag that looks like it's probably a 50-gallon bag and just swoops it through the air and grabs probably 20 pounds of shrimp. Oh, my, or and squid. Took them home, or, or squid, yeah, and took them home. I thought, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> also, Sven, that's against regulations. Yes. Come on, buddy. But uh, that's hilarious. And you can do it because... Uh, you know, if anybody's familiar with like uh, dogs in heat or uh, like elk when they're in the rut, like those squid are out of their minds. Like right. they're not paying attention. They're kind of drunk on reproduction. You know, this is their last hurrah. It's like a bachelor party weekend for those guys. Right. It's crazy. And one of the great things about vets in the squid run is the canyon that's so close to shore there that anything that eats squid comes up and anything that eats things that eat squid come up. So you never know what you're going to find. Oh, it's cool. So, you go do that dive, and you can hear the dolphins at night. It's really, really cool. I've never seen the dolphins at night because, obviously, they can see you with their uh, echolocation long before you see them. But we see uh, sea lions coming in. Um, bat rays. Bat rays are always there when there's a squid run. And I don't – you know, if people have not experienced this, let me just describe the squid run for a second, and, and you can jump in, too, if you have anything to add. It's like a herd of locusts. It is like a herd of locusts, and it's a, a herd, it's a swarm, and you can actually get to the point, if it's a good squid run, where you can't see the bottom, and you're on the bottom. Right. If you're neutrally buoyant, you have no idea what depth in the water column you are, and you can be completely surrounded. They're attracted to your lights. It is one of the most amazing experiences that you can have underwater, my opinion. The only negative thing I've ever found about a squid run is seal bombs. The squid boats also come out, and they anchor right outside the harbor. And you can be underwater, and the sound travels so fast underwater, 600 times more than in air. And the seal bombs will go up. They're basically M80s that they drop in the water. Yeah. And you get a concussion instantly. You feel it in your chest, your head, everything. You, oh. just, like, you just feel this bang like somebody hit you with a hammer. And they're dropping them because they see bubbles, and the sea lions go over to where the bubbles are. Yeah. And they just they throw them right where divers are, basically. It's like they're almost trying to hit our bubbles. And we'd get out, and in fact, a friend of mine was diving with me one night. He, he picked up some of the, the paper from the, uh, the seal bombs on the bottom after they exploded. We're just picking up the trash. He came back with probably 20 of them oh that God. were right where all the divers were. And that's super dangerous, man. Like, you do not want to be near any explosives underwater. I mean, there's stories of submarines being hit by uh, depth charges, right. but not actually, like, no damage to the sub, but the vibration going through actually kills people. Right. Like, it's just, it's a different force underwater. The concussive power. We actually discussed bringing sharp knives with us and going out and cutting the nets, but that's even more dangerous for us. We get caught in a net and drown, so we didn't even want to try Oh, it's, 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 it's a no-win. It, it takes the fun out of diving when you get angry at somebody. That is, and that is, that is the worst part. Like, there's really random things like that where you feel uh, you can get into a position where you're angry at a person. Uh, I know you're open with your dive sites, but not everybody is. And I don't know if you've had this experience where people get very particular and angry uh, when you happen to roll up on what they consider their dive site in the ocean, which is free <laughs> land by national treaty. And people can be real aggressive for no reason. I, I was doing a beach dive at Marineland one day, and I heard a boat coming up overhead. And this is in lobster season. And oh, so yeah. And there's traps everywhere. And I thought... Pre-MPA, well, I'm yeah, assuming. Right. Yeah. And I thought, I don't want this fisherman to think I'm taking his lobsters because... There, there are divers who will do that. We'll take lobsters out of traps. And 
I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go up here. I'm near a trap. I'm just going to go up. I'm only in about 20 feet. Let him know I'm not taking anything from his trap not to worry about me. I surfaced to a shotgun pointing at me. Jesus. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I said, look, look, I've got a camera. I don't have a bag. I'm not touching your lobsters. <laughs> yeah, I just want to give a, Was it a commercial guy? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's his livelihood, but still, that's a little extra. So did you hear, I'm sure you've heard the story, the story about how uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife caught the uh, the lobster thief that was going into commercial pots in, uh, I think it was in Laguna before it became an M- MPA. I've heard sometimes they'll actually put up, they'll plant a lobster in there that's marked. Exactly. <laughs> and so they were doing star punches yeah. on the on tails of the in- inner uh, fans of the tails where you would never look. Right. There's no reason you would pay attention to that. And so what they basically did is uh, this guy was going into traps and stealing them. Well, they were seeding traps with these lobster and then finding this guy with these lobster like this, and they ended up busting him. I forget what they charged him with. I should look up that story. It's a super cool story. I knew a family when I worked at the dive shop. Uh, this whole family would come in. Only one of them died, but the whole family would come in all the time and sometimes shoplift. So the owner of the shop said, watch these guys. Only if they come in to get a tank fill... Go back, put the whip on the tank, then go back out and watch. Then go back, turn the air on, and come back out and watch. And so we we're always watching them. And they used to brag about all the poaching they did. Oh, and God. That's one the day, worst, man. one day he told me the guy came in and told me he was diving at uh, Cabrillo Beach, and he said he's or he's getting ready. He rented a couple tanks and was going to get some Garibaldis. He said they're uh, they're aphrodisiacs. I said you got like eighteen kids. Why do you need an aphrodisiac? Yeah, you but, c- cut cut down on the Garibaldi yeah. for all of our sake. But boys. I had gone diving that morning at White Point, and it was one of those rare days where you have great visibility at White Point. That Normally is a rare it's day. Bad, but it was beautiful, thirty feet visibility, and it was, I did a long dive and it was beautiful. Then went to work about an hour after that, and he rented his tanks. And I had a friend at the time who was a department uh, fishing game wildlife uh, who a uh, ranger got a house right above at bluff bluff right above White Point. So as soon as the guy left with the rental tanks, I called him up and said, you know who is going to be over at Cabrillo Beach in a few minutes talking about Garibaldi? You might want to keep an eye on him. Oh, my god! The guy came back about 45 minutes later, returned the tanks unused, and said, oh, the visibility looked bad, so we decided not to dive. I think they saw the green truck and ran. Oh, my God. You know, that is, I don't. They eventually arrested him a couple of years later. There was a story about him in the Daily Breeze. He was diving off Flat Rock and came up with something like 500 short lobsters, Garibaldi, just anything he could poach, he would take. And they finally didn't catch him. But they knew about him for years, but could never catch him, but finally did. Well, the problem is, too, is the, the consequences for that are very low. Right. In fact, it's not as high, it's not as high, it's not high enough to be a deterrent, you know? Well, Fish and Wildlife want to stop this, but the problem is the courts aren't quite as interested because they don't want overcrowding in jails. And they'll give them a fine, say, you know, don't do that again, or... They take their fishing license away, which is kind of a joke for poachers. Because poachers don't care if they have a fishing license or not. They're yeah. poachers. Well, and that's the problem. And, you know, we have some very – like California in some ways is um, very good about managing its its uh, fisheries. Uh, and that's in part because of the history. And then, you know, in world around the time of World War One, we basically crashed our sardine fisheries. And – uh, we've done a much better job of managing things like our California lobster, which is one of the most stable fisheries there is. But people who poach, um, it's it's it just it. I don't know. It, it bugs me. One of the owners of the dive shop uh, moved here from Croatia, and he said when he first got here, he didn't know all the rules and everything. And he was at Abalone Cove one day. He would go down to the tide pools and just with a screwdriver pick the abalone off the rocks. This was back in oh. the seventies when you could still find them there. Yeah. And he said. 
there was a guy up on the cliff watching with binoculars, and he thought, why is this guy watching me? So he, he filled his bucket with probably 50 or 60 abalone, walked back up the trail, and the guy wrote him a ticket, and he had to go to court for it. He showed up in court and said, I didn't know the, the laws. And the judge told the warden, says, well, you were watching him the whole time with your binoculars and saw what he was doing, right? Yes. Aren't you sworn to protect the marine life of California? Oh, my God. He ended up not even giving, he, he just voided the ticket. He said, you should have stopped him the first time you saw him do take one abalone. Oh, my so God. What a, different, what a different day and age, huh? I mean, it's just like you would never expect that. From a judge these days. And occasionally you see people do get big fines, but they're usually the people they've been watching for a year and see what they're Multiple doing. In, in Northern California, they have a problem with people uh, taking abalone and selling them to restaurants in San Francisco. And oh. so it's, it's more of an organized crime thing. They'll, they'll hire other people to go out and dive and do this free dive there for them. They don't even have to be a scuba diver. They just go out and take abalone and sell them. And they'll catch people every now and then. And now they're actually taking their car, their truck, their boats, whatever dive gear they have. Yeah, they're seizing stuff. Them. But... The problem is they get away with it so many times that they'll make they'll make a hundred thousand dollars and then get fined fifteen thousand dollars. So they don't really care too much. Which is I, I almost in some ways I feel bad talking about it because I don't know. I hope nobody feels emboldened to be a poacher and think that they can do it for a profit. Uh, like their karma comes back. There was a guy who was well known in King Harbor. He used to go out and set lobster traps right off Redondo, and it's illegal to commercial fish in the bay. You can't set lobster traps inside the bay. And he was doing it right off Redondo Beach. Oh my God. And people knew about it for years. One morning, about just after sunrise, uh, there was a report to the Coast Guard or Harbor Patrol. There was a boat just going in circles out there, and they didn't know what was going on. Turned out it was him. He'd thrown one of his traps over and got his ankle caught in the line and pulled him overboard. And they found him hanging about 30 feet below his boat. Oh He'd been God. down for hours with his boat still spinning around. That is a, that's like a, that's like a fable. That's like a horrific, Disney style fable. In fact, one of the, uh, the elevated, <coughs> is a elevated pipe, the outfall pipe off El Segundo. I know of at least three fatalities in there a father and son. And then two years ago, another guy went in there. Yeah. There's a couple openings in the pipe, and they'll go in inside the pipe to get lobsters. And it's not like a pipe laying in the sand that you can do a little swim through. These are, you know, this is a mile long pipe. And they go in there and then run low on air because for some reason, lobster hunting brings out the stupidity in people. It is the is the number one way to die it's, you, it's in like, California. You look at your gauge and go, I have 300 PSI left. I have time to get that one last bug. And it's like, no lobster is worth your life, but there have been so many people in California yeah. die getting that last bug. So that's the one thing. Like I, I, When people ask me, like, oh, you're crazy. You go under the water. Isn't it dangerous? <laughs> and it's like, no, you know, it's actually, there's if you are trained well and you practice well, you know, to the credit of you know G U uh, E guys is like they 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 do practice well, and you know if you are a practice diver and you you know what to do in a bad situation, for the most part you're never in a really bad situation. If you have good rules and things like that, the exception to that, I say the one thing that is really dangerous is a lobster is is a lobster dive. <laughs> Because your your shift your focus for diving changes from, you know, doing it safely and doing it right to this other task. In fact, it becomes a mania as opening night for lobster season in Southern California is like Christmas for divers. There's all the dive shops all of a sudden they make their most money then people mm -hmm. buying 
you know, they get their fishing license. They don't even get it in January. They wait till September to get their fishing license. And it's the most likely time for people to die. Right. And some people who haven't even dived in since the end of the season. That is they terrifying. They, they go out and, you know, they haven't dived. They haven't checked their gear. And they just go out and they don't. It's not like a mania. You get down there and all of a sudden your focus has shifted so much on every lobster you see that you're not watching your gauge like you would on a normal dive. Well, and those people scare me the most because they are, uh, they're not diving except for lobster diving. And so they don't have the good habits that you would normally have on a regular dive that they're going to overcome. They just have lobster, lobster style habits, which is a little different. Like a lot of people lose their buddies while lobster diving. That's a potential problem. A lot of people will push, you know, to the edge of air consumption with lobster diving. A lot of times people aren't paying attention to their depth, so they think they're diving in 30 feet, but they're really diving in 60 feet. Or they think they're diving in 60 feet and they push down to 80 feet. Like there's just a lot of small things that can go wrong. And if people are not careful, like that's that's when they get that's when they get it. It's task loading combined with um, you know, a change in focus. And it's amazing how I've noticed before I used to take lobsters myself before I started getting into photography. Your adrenaline and your air consumption just go crazy. You oh, start yeah. grabbing at things, and all of a sudden you're huffing and puffing without realizing it. And as soon as you do, you think, oh, slow down, slow down. But then you see another big bug, and, you, <laughs> and you, all of a sudden you, yeah. you almost see your needle going down. <laughs> it is It is one of the most – that being said, talking about all the dangers and stuff, it is one of the most exciting. I still go back and do lobster dives when it's season. Um, I have a couple friends that are always really happy when I, when I bring them a bug. If I bring them a bug, you know, that's always fun. Um, and you know, if people are visiting, you can pull a lobster out of the freezer and be like, "Yeah, hey, let's have a lobster dinner. And everybody's like, Wah! you know, so it, there's a lot of pros to it. And that's another reason why people love it so much, but a hundred percent, your air consumption goes out. You don't realize how much you inadvertently breathe when you're making like quick movements. And then you get to the point where I got to go. I got to go. And you start swimming up and you don't realize you've got an extra 12 or 15 pounds with you that you didn't have at the start of the dive. You had better lobster dives than me, sir. I, I usually I, don't have 12 or 15 I, I, I pounds. Never, the most lobsters I ever got on a dive was three. I wasn't very good at it, but I did find a couple of big ones. Yeah. Well, if you get three that add up to 15 pounds, that's not bad. I was doing a dive once uh, with an ex-girlfriend of mine. We were diving on the uh, Joanna Smith wreck off the Long Beach break wall. And I saw a, a huge lobster, biggest one I'd seen at the point. And that wreck is actually good for lobsters because they can go underneath, but they can't go very far. They go uh, in about yeah. six or seven inches and stop. So I wrestled one out of underneath and like pull him out. I didn't want to break him apart or anything. I finally got him out. He was six and a half pounds. I'd never got one that big before. So I, it took me a while to even get him in my bag. And I turned, and here's another one the same size right next to it. Oh, no. I got it. Managed to get both of them in the bag, and that's all I could fit in my bag. I was going to say, that's, that's, that, a, that big, my that's a full bag. I go over, and I hadn't got into the bag yet. I went over to where my girlfriend was diving about 30 feet away, and I had it up against my chest, and I was going to ask her to help me put it in my bag. Yeah. I looked at her, and she was holding an 11-pounder. Huh. Just all of a sudden, it's like my ego went, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, didn't eat, I didn't even eat lobster. I'm not a big seafood fan, but I would catch them, and he would come over. She loved lobster, so she, I would just feed her, basically. So and did you keep the 11-pounder? She did. She kept wow. it, and she said she fed her... Brother, sister, brother-in-law, mom, and their neighbor. They had dinner and then lunch again the next day. And then she used the, the carapace. She put a string on it and used it as a hat for Halloween for decoration. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, don't, 
I actually won't keep them if they're above seven pounds. Yeah, most, most people won't even keep anything that's like three pounds. It's like, no, no, let the big ones go. Yeah, I mean, I probably wouldn't keep one over five pounds, actually. But the, I was just I, excited. I've never seen one that big oh, before. It's like, oh, I got to get this and show everybody what I got. <laughs> yeah, well, they're super cool, right? Yeah. Like, when they get to that size, they're just... They're almost like caricatures of lobster because the could, head gets really big and yeah. the, the tail's big, but the heads get yeah, the like head, really... It seems like the tail... In fact, you can find some that are legal size that have the same size tail as one of the huge ones. Yeah, it's crazy. So we got lucky. You know the uh, the old uh, uh, red cars right. that were dumped. I mean, there's only chassis. I don't even know right. if chassis are still around anymore. It's, I haven't dove them They're in laying on the bottom... In fact, I did a dive there a couple years ago, and it was the best visibility I've ever seen out there. It blew water. I got in the water and dropped one of my fins. Oh, but I could see it dropping below me, and so I'm kicking after it with one fin. I didn't catch it until I got to the bottom, but I could see it go all the way down. Oh, wow. That's good, like, That's good visibility about for the red cars. about feet, and I'm looking down, and I could just see it as I'm kicking against it, just racing to it. And I finally caught up with it, but as I reached the bottom, I put my fin on and continued the dive. But there's really nothing left there. In fact, there's a lot of places around Palos Verdes now that aren't what they used to be. The uh, landing craft has collapsed, and there really isn't anything yeah. left now. It used to be a great spot. In fact, you've got a video from a few years ago where it was still nice. You know, there was the little, uh, the little cabin in the back where the yeah, steering was. Yeah, still open. It, it's gone now. It's all laying flat on the bottom now. One well, time, uh, Mary and I were diving there, and there used to be giant sea bass that would hang out. In fact, there used yeah. to be a juvenile that would go inside one of the little engine compartments. And sometimes we'd say five or six giant sea bass on a dive. And I was up on top of the little wheelhouse one time, just looking around for something small. And there was a Garibaldi nest on top. And I looked over the edge, and Mary was down there taking a picture of a nudibranch crawling up the side. And she had a five-foot giant sea bass looking over her shoulder from behind her. Oh, my gosh. And she didn't see it. I was trying to get her attention and pointing. And by the time she looked around, he was gone. But he was trying to see what she was doing. Dude, I've, that same thing has happened to Scott. So Scott has this video. He's taken a video of a nudibranch, which, you know, a little Spanish shawl. Looks like a little purple worm with orange flames, flamey stuff coming out the back. And you see in the video, he looks over with the video, and there's a giant black sea bass. Like, not a small one. Right. Like, a six-foot giant black sea bass right next to him. And it's just hanging out. It was almost like he was like, hey, what are you looking at? What's going on? And then you see the sea bass in the video look at him and then kind of go back to whatever he was looking at inside the uh -huh. little engine compartment there. And then he looks again, kind of like, "Hey, man, stop staring at me!" Are, and then are you he takes grab off. Or not? Yeah, exactly. What are you? Are you gonna give me? You're gonna feed me one? And what's funny about the giant sea bass? I'll go to places like Hermosa Artificial Reef where there's residents. Yeah, dude, your videos, your videos coming out of there right now are pretty epic. There, I've gotten to the point now. They they seem to know me, but also if you don't move much, if you just lay on the bottom or don't move, they'll they'll take. They say, "Okay, you're fine. You're not gonna grab me or anything." So I can get really close and get some good shots. And I started setting up a GoPro on a tripod underneath what we call the rodeo bar. There's one bar where they do these little mating things where they swim in tight circles. Huh. So I, I put the camera down and then swim off and just let it run while I'm going off trying to get pictures of other ones. But they're so, they're so tame there. They're used to us, and they come right up to us. Sometimes they come up and look in the dome for it just to see the reflection, I think. No way. In fact, a, a friend of mine actually said he pulled some of the copepods off their face. I've, I've wanted to try it, but I don't want to scare them, so I don't touch them. But he said he actually pulled a couple off their face. Do they like that? Uh, well, he, they're there basically to be cleaned by the right? senoritas and the calico bass. Okay. So he was actually trying to clean it, and they didn't seem to mind. I, wow. I don't know if I tried. I wanted to try it once. I said, no, I don't want to scare him because then I won't get any photos. Yeah, exactly. But it's funny when I don't expect to see one. Uh, Mary laughs at me because we were at Golf Ball Reef one day, and I'm looking at a nudibranch, and all of a sudden 
a giant sea bass is right on the side of my head. And she said, you know, you scream like a little girl when you see things. <laughs> yeah, I know, I do. <laughs> yeah, she, I mean, she it's... She heard me a long way. Like, ah! <laughs> but they, okay, but there are certain fish in the water that carry, like, a presence. Right. And I feel like whatever you're doing underwater, when a big fish comes in, you just kind of feel it. Like, those guys, I've been places where I've been doing something, lobster diving or looking at tiny stuff like you're just talking about, and you can feel the presence of the fish kind of enter in. And I don't know if it's a sixth sense or if it's electrical or whatever it is, but it's like that, man. I've had a few people tell me that they've never seen one. And I always say, you know, you can go to Avalon or something, see in the park once in a while, but I send them a link to your video you shot one day off of off, off the Torrance Beach. Right. Torrance Beach. And in the kelp was... 40 or 50 or something. No, no, no. Like there was, there was legitimately, I counted like 15 and they were juveniles. So they're maybe like, I think the large one looked like maybe three feet or something. Yeah. Like 60, 70 pounds. But there, you just never see that many. But there were so many. I didn't know if you got all of them because I was in your shots. There were so many in the shot that I just assumed they were all around you everywhere. Oh dude, they were so I couldn't believe I've never seen that many at one time. So there was four of us in the water. We were doing a lobster dive and, uh, I just happened to grab my GoPro. On a lobster dive, you're lucky to have it with you because you never know what you're going to see. And all of a sudden, that lobster dive became a sea bass dive. Exactly. Well, you pull up to a spot and the water was so clear, I had never seen it that clear in that spot. Never. I don't know if I ever will again. And I was like, I'm going to take the GoPro. Like, I'll go for lobster, but I had got, I had had, I was having a good season. I was just like, I'll take the lobster, I'm sorry, the GoPro with me. And I drop into the water and everybody goes straight down to the reef and starts hunting, right? I'm in the water, maybe 10 feet down doing my descent. And I see five giant black sea bass. And I'm like, well, this is going to be a GoPro dive. I'm going to take some video. This is amazing. And there ended up being 15 and they were just circling around that reef. And it was, that was one of my best dives. I couldn't believe it. Because I do them at Hermosa. Like I said, there's residents year round. Yeah. But we very rarely get visibility there. Most of the time. Fortunately, when I take pictures there, I'm using a wide-angle fisheye lens, so it makes it look way better than it really is. Yeah, I'll have seven or eight feet of visibility on a good day, sometimes two to three feet. Ugh. But I can get close enough to the fish that I can light it up, and it looks like 10, 15 feet of visibility. When it, it does. Really isn't. Yeah, okay, because I was going to say, it looks like it's 10 to 15 feet. There's an overhang there that they like to hang underneath it. And I'll, I'll, I'll have my dome port probably anywhere from a foot to two feet from the fish. And yet, because the fisheye lens, it'll look like I'm 10 feet back. Yeah. Because I get the whole picture, and everybody says, wow, you're always saying it's bad biz, but that looked pretty good. Yeah, that is the beauty. That is one of the things. That photography can help you lie. We took a friend of ours out last year there. He wanted to get some pictures. He's got a lot of good pictures of them on the Star of Scotland, but he wanted to see the ones at Hermosa, because we're always posting all these pictures. And it was one of those days where it was probably three feet visibility. It was not good at all. And I don't even think he got a single photo that day. And I got photos of him swimming with the giant sea bass. He says, where was I that day? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. So speak to this. Because I, I'm a big believer that uh, the more familiar you are with a site, the more times you dive it, the better you, the better you know that place, the more you get out of it. Right. Uh, like uh, I dive vets all the time. Uh, I think knowing the topography, knowing where I am all the time, and knowing where I can find certain things – really does amplify my ability to like go in and get photos or look for fish if I'm trying to get something to eat or whatever. Do you find that that's kind of the case? Uh, for some sites especially, I've got over 350 dives at Marineland. Yeah. Now Terranea Resort. And 
I don't think I've looked at my compass there in the last 20 years. Yeah. Because I know where I'm at any point, even in bad visibility, I find my way back to the cove. And sometimes I'll, I'll enter at the point or I'll enter the cove and swim all the way to the point. It's a quarter mile of surface swim, drop down, just make my way back underwater and try to time it exactly right. So I end up in two feet of water where you hear the gravel rolling back and forth. Yeah. Get up and walk out, hopefully not fall. Marineland is probably one of the most beautiful beach dive sites in really? Palos Verdes. I, there's some, if you go to the 120 reef on the left, it's, I don't like it. It's, I've dived there a lot, but you know, it's tough to see, but it looks like every other reef. I prefer the pinnacles closer oh, yeah. to the point. Yeah, if you go out to the point, there's some nice stuff, especially in about 65 feet. You'll see a lot of stuff that you won't see anywhere else. There's gorgonians yeah. everywhere, a lot of rockfish. Yeah. But you either have to enter at the point or do a long surface swim. It's, Marineland is one of those dive sites where it's a lot of work, but more often than not, it's worth it. But if you haven't fallen and gotten hurt there, you haven't dived it enough. I have a friend who she will never go back because she has a scar on her face from when she got knocked over. I, I mean, it is a, break, it is a rock entry. It's not a joke. I had a guy joke. break an ankle one time getting out. That would be bad. We were diving with a guy on one of the calmest days ever. Yeah. It, was, it was just beautiful, flat, good visibility. And he's dived there almost as many times as I have. And we were telling each other about our favorite places. And I said, I have this one pinnacle that I love. It's, it's got so much stuff on it. Me too, I've got one too, and he wanted to show me where his pinnacle was. And he said, you show me yours first. So we go out to where my pinnacle was. We drop down at it, and he's pointing and laughing. I can always hear him talking underwater. He's pointing at a little a luggage tag on the bottom of the reef that's got his name on it. No <laughs> kidding. Said, wow, it's the same pinnacle. Oh, my <laughs> but God. We, we end up, we made it back to the cove. We're getting out, and we're standing up. Mary and I walk out. It's, it's like the water's lapping up to the shore. There's no waves whatsoever. He's about a foot from shore, and he slips and reaches down to catch himself and breaks three fingers on the rocks. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> on the calmest of days. I mean, you know, but that's the thing, though. You let your guard down. And one thing I avoid, I've done it too many times, but I try to avoid is exiting at the point. Yeah, The yeah, point's yeah. hard enough to get in the water. Even on a, a calm day, great. But on a rough day, you have to time the surf. And if you don't time it right, you're going to get swept back into urchins or the rocks, or worse, lose gear. I've lost a fin there, and then a fisherman found it later. But one time I was exiting at the point, and... It was one of those where the swells come up underneath you and just lift you. They're not really breaking waves. And I'm getting close to shore, and I see this big rock, and I turn around and, and never turn your back on the ocean, especially there. Oh, yeah. I turn around and look and saw this swell coming in. So I reached over and just grabbed the rock, sides of the rock with my hand to hold on. The swell lifted me up. Instead of pushing me face first in the rock, lifted me up and flipped me over 180. And all I was thinking was, don't hit your face. Don't hit your face. <laughs> I landed on my back on top of the rock. My tank hit the back, and I didn't get hurt at all. I was thinking, that would have killed most people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that, oh geez, that's insane. So you did, you got to do basically a, a wave assisted flip. Yeah. So and just so people know, uh, this resort in Palos Verdes, it's south facing, which means, and it's not in the shadow of Catalina, so it gets wave action. Yeah. So you got to kind of pick your day there. And even, one thing about Marineland is, other sites in California, if you see two to three foot surf, might not be a big deal. No. One foot surf, no big deal. Anything over three feet in marine land is deadly. Yeah, no, you could have a real bad day. Um, it's I've, a rocky entry, a rocky exit, and the exit itself is so hard. I always tell people when they die within the first time there, you need to take baby steps when you get out. Yep. You come back, you get to where you can touch the bottom, take your fins off there. Don't try to crawl out if you have to. It's yeah. not vets where, because if you crawl, you're still going to get rolled over. Oh, it's brutal. Rocky beach, I couldn't imagine it's, crawling it's out It's easier there. to walk out, but if you do, time your exit, watch the surf. When you get a little bit of a lull, just like surfers, you know, the surf comes in lulls. Wait for a lull and then take baby steps and walk out. If you don't make it, 
just brace yourself, turn sideways, wait for the next series of waves to come in, but don't try to fight it. And I've seen way too many people just get knocked down. One time, Mary wanted to videotape me coming out to show people how to exit there. And it was so, small, so it wasn't too bad. I'm walking out, and I got like two feet from the dry rocks and got knocked down. When she's videotaping? Yes. <laughs> Can you she's send me flying. that video? I would like to post that one. <laughs> I doubt she, I think I may have erased that one. <laughs> yeah. Oops, accidentally. How did that happen? One of my strangest uh, wave dives, uh, my friend and I were doing a night dive at uh, White Point one night. Yeah. And I had done a dive earlier in the day, and it was one of those rare days with a good visibility. So we hiked down the fire road and entered on on the uh, east side of the of the point. And since we got in the water, there's a giant sea bass looking at us, or looking at me anyway. And I looked over at my friend Jeff and said, wow, I did my big sign like that. He goes, didn't see it. So I'm like, oh, you missed out. A couple minutes later, the giant sea bass comes back, and he's looking right at my face. And I look over at Jeff, and he's finally looking at it. So he sees it this time. But we saw a couple of good, nice big stingrays, walls covered with lobsters. It was, one of the, it was probably 30 feet visibility at night. Which any, anything over three feet visibility is good there. But it was the best night I've ever had at White Point. So we swam around to the cove so we can make our exit. It's, it's still deadly, but it's easier to exit there. Yeah. We get into the middle of the cove, and we can feel the surge picking up a lot. Oh, so no. I thought, you know what? Let's go up here and just do a surface swim to get in. We got up, and there were four to five foot swells. And oh, I thought, my oh, God. Oh, this is going to be bad because this is deadly anytime. But at night, night, you can't see the beach. And we, oh. for about 20 minutes, we discussed swimming to Point Furman or swimming to Marina, just going anywhere to swim to get to out somewhere avoid, else. To and avoid said, whites. And I thought, there's no other place around that's an easy exit around here. So we thought, you know no. what? We're just going to go for it. And I thought I had to get up and go to work for the next morning. So I said, I can't wait you know, wait for it to calm down. So we had to get out. So we're swimming in. And just as I'm getting near shore, a swell came in and lifted us up. And I thought, we're going to crash bad. This is going to be bad. We both landed on our feet on the rocks and walked out. I couldn't believe it. Oh, my I, God. I thought we were about to get just slammed into the rocks. We both landed on our feet. Oh, God. That's like I can. My chest is tightening <laughs> thinking about being in that situation where you're like, I know the beach is right there, but to get to it is like I'm going to have to, I might have to feel some pain. Even Marine Land, when you're at the cove, when it's not too rough, it's like you're almost within reach of dry rocks, but you just cannot get there no matter what. Oh, and if the swell's coming in, the dread in your heart, oh, it's so brutal. It's not step, good. And a step at bets. Sometimes you can get to that step and just, you cannot get that last two feet to get out of the water. I wait, listen. Say what you will about vets. I love a good set, a little swell oh, when yeah. I'm getting out at vets because it has that dip in, in the infl sand. Inflate your BC, duck down, and let it carry you over that step. Listen, <laughs> people at home, there is a real thing in this world. It's called the Veterans Park Crawl. <laughs> and uh, the soft sand right before you get out of the water there, I have seen more people crawl out of Veterans Park and get rolled and have bad things because they can't navigate that soft step. And it's the trick is keep that BCD inflated and just let the wave hit you and give you a little bit of boost. Sometimes it does, the wave doesn't even like, uh, doesn't even like, it's not above your waist or anything. And it just gives you just enough little lift to get up out of there. Momentum, I don't know what it is, but that is the trick there. But I could not imagine trying to do a rocky entry with five foot swells, Phil. On, uh, that sounds insane. On Mary's 100th dive, I was sick. I couldn't dive with her. And I, I said, do you want to just wait until I'm better? And she said, no, no, I, I want to get out. There's, there's stuff to see. We're diving at vets. So I just stood on the beach and watched. She was diving with Patrick Smith, who wrote the wreck diving book for Southern California. Yeah. And uh, I was just watching the whole time, watching their bubbles. She got out. And one thing I love about Mary is she'll get out of the water, jumping up and down, excited about the things that she saw. <laughs> That's, That's the reason awesome. I want to meet her in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> I another good story about how I met her.
but she got out of the water. She saw some of the ju- there's little baby giant sea bass about. Oh yeah, those guys are so cool. Vets, and they're usually in the little bumps in the sand. And she she sat there and watched them. She just said, "I was in five feet of water watching it feed on mice and shrimp for the last ten minutes of the dive." And she just she got out. And she was so excited. Patrick came out, and he doesn't do a lot of beach dives. <laughs> he, he came out and just got rolled. And I saw him try to get up and get rolled again. <laughs> I finally went over to help, but he got rolled probably three or four times. And I tried hard not to laugh, but I couldn't help it. <laughs> oh man, it's listen. Once everybody's safe, it's it's hilarious. It's funny. Uh, but it can be it can be a rough go of it for people, and I've seen people uh, swear off beach diving because of experience <laughs> like that. They're like, "All right, well, I'm never going to do that again." I did a night dive in bets one time when there was a small squid run, but it was really bad visibility, and I had bat rays coming up and hitting me constantly. And I'm I'm squeamish underwater. If a Garibaldi touches me, I hate it. I just my, I, <laughs> I, I I would love to see a big shark, things like that. Things don't scare me unless I don't expect it. Yeah. In fact, Mary comes over and taps me sometimes, and I jump. Oh, my gosh. But, but uh, one night, this I was even get hit in the legs by bat rays constantly. They were going after the squid, just running into me. And I said, okay, I've had enough. So I turned and left and got out of the water, and I got over the step, didn't have any problem, but I'm kind of huffing it, getting out of the, across the sand. I want to just get out of the water and rinse things off. And some guy came up and was asking me about my video camera and what kind of dive I had. And he says, why are, you, why are you going so fast? I'm trying to get away from the bat race. They're going to follow me. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to chase you to the parking lot. <laughs> they were. <laughs> well, Phil, let me ask you about something. Else. Speaking of like being poked and prodded, um, you are one of the rare people who've actually seen the L.A. pod of Orca Twice. Whales. Twice. Got lucky. We were coming back in from a dive once, and I heard I had my radio on the, on the boat, and I heard the lifeguards calling, and they were calling Voyager, the whale watch boat, oh, out, yeah. out of Redondo. And they said, uh, we've got some off the stacks if you want to come up. I said, well, I wasn't planning to go all the way to Manhattan, but, you know, I've only seen one orca. And that was, Catalina, I saw it come up once, and that was it. Wow. I said, well, let's, let's just go up. It's only another five miles. Let's go up and check them out. So we watched them for a while, and the uh, lifeguards, I heard them on the radio, and they were saying that one of their buddies had never seen orcas before, so he was out on the bow of the lifeguard boat. I said, you know what? He's never seen one either. I'm going to let him have it. So we just stayed back and let them enjoy it. But then we went over, and we found a... Um, pieces of what was left of one of their their kills yeah they, they killed a small dolphin and oh we found God. just the intestines and the heart right floating on the surface oh wow ironically the kids who were on the whale watch boat that day their mascot school was the dolphins uh. <laughs> <laughs> but they, so, i guess they had a good time seeing them and then one day we got lucky we, did, we were diving at marine land and we finished the dive and got ready to go home and i saw two boats together about a half mile offshore you don't usually see two boats together unless there's a whale. So let's just go check it out. And it turned out one of the boats was a friend of ours. And she said, we got orcas all over the place. So we stayed for an hour and they were mating next to us, coming alongside the boat, going under the boat. They didn't care. We weren't motoring. We turned everything off, just, just idled next to them. But they kept coming right over to the boat and looking at us. And they would roll on their side and look up at us. Oh, how cool. And I saw one. It was good visibility. Did you make eye day. contact? Oh, yeah. I was having a good time. Oh, my God. I was shooting video and Mary was shooting stills. And we saw one dive down and then turn to come up. And I thought he was going to come up spy hop near the boat. I said, oh, Mary, get ready. You're going to get a good shot of his head when he comes up to spy hop. Instead, he kind of says, get ready. He breached right next to the boat. Oh my and God. she got a, 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 one of her favorite shots, best shot. He breached right next to us, almost completely out of the water, 10 feet away from the boat. Oh, my God. How cool. And I was shooting video, and I can hear him say, I think I got it. Yeah, I might have got that one. <laughs> Did you consider getting in the water with them? I have, in fact, a couple times. I've I've wanted. I've never seen a whale underwater, and I've always yeah. wanted to. 
And I thought, no, because I don't want to get in trouble. I also don't want to get get hurt or anything. But I don't, I, I don't know I if I trust them. them. Well, when the blue whales come around every now and we had a few years ago, there was a guy who videotapes lobster dives a lot, and he was going out in his kayak and just doing video this. of the blue whales. So one night, he stuck his GoPro underwater and got some shots. He said, that was fun. The next night, he said, you know what? I don't care. He just put his fin mask and fins on and got in the water, and he got some of the best shots of blue whales I've ever seen. They would swim right up to him and just go past him. He wasn't harassing them. They were coming to him. But he got so many negative feedback, and people were sending him emails saying, you're harassing the whales. And he wasn't touching them. You know, they came to check him out. So. That is – so – that is an interesting controversy in the kind of underwater world, right, is there is a whole bunch of people who get very sensitive and very upset, sometimes rightfully so, and sometimes um, I think maybe it's a little bit of an overreaction right. in people wanting to interact or not even interact, but just kind of witness the whales, uh, marine mammals, because they're so charismatic, because people like them so right. much. It seems that draw a lot of uh, uh, ire uh, when people try and, you know, view them in the wild. Uh, sharks now, too, are a big thing. Great whites and a lot of other sharks, uh, they don't like the feeding operations. They're upset that people are doing it. Um, I don't. I don't have as strong feelings necessarily as some people on some of those. I think there's probably some operations that are better than others. Um I don't know. What do you? I, well, you, I even got a negative comment from somebody on my video of the ones off of Marine Land and Point Vicinity, uh, saying we're all people in the boats are out harassing them. I said we're not. We're just sitting there. They're coming to us, and I tried to explain that we're not, you know, running into them. We're not going yeah. in front of them, and you're and, not chasing them down. But the funny thing was, he said we we should both be fined for it. And I said well, it was funny that my friend on the other boat is the head of the American Cetacean Society, and she, she's the one that she counts all these whales that does the you know the survey every year. They count the gray whales going by. She's not going to harass a whale. It would kill her to even touch a whale or do anything to harm him. Right, and she and, would probably be the first one to call out another boat if right. they were doing it. In fact, she yelled over and says, Phil, Mary, come here. They're, they're mating right here. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to be in the water when they're mating. I, I don't even... Well, in a black and white dry suit. I don't even know if I'd suit. want to be in the water with them, even though there's been no no actually certified kill of a human other than SeaWorld where they deserve it. But <laughs> Yeah, other than, you know, captivity. In the, in the wild... There's, you know, there's been a report of a diver in Alaska who used to film all the time who didn't come back from a dive. They don't know what happened. But there's been no re really reported kills or injuries from orcas on humans. But still, they eat mammals. So I don't know if I'd want to get in the water with them or not. I'm not sure we'd register as a mammal that they would eat. Right. But here's the problem, man. Those things are so smart. Right. They're so smart, they just might decide one day that they're going to experiment and see what happens. I've seen videos of the people in the whale watch going out of Long Beach and Dana Point and one day they had uh, they had a little juvenile, a little baby that looked like it was probably a week old, and they were teaching it to hunt. You could see the other adults staying on the sides of it, holding it back, while two of them went out in front and got a sea lion. And it's almost like they were making sure he watched. And you could just see them saying, no, 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 stay here, watch this, watch this. And they wouldn't let him swim just because wow. they wanted to see him catch a sea lion right in front of them. They're so smart, man. That It is trippy. There's a couple critters in the ocean that are just like – you know, they might be evolving right in front of us. Right. Whales and dolphins, like especially the ones that have really coordinated hunting patterns and strong family links, and, you know, orcas are right there at the top of that. And then also, like, the octopus. And like, there's, there's some where around the world, there's different places where dolphins or turtles and they will purposely come back 
when they see the divers in the water, like the sea lions at Santa Barbara Island at the rookery there. Oh, 100%. You get out there, and they all of a sudden, they're all jumping in the water, going to hang out by the boat, saying, come on, come on, get in, we want to play. That is, I would argue, that's one of the best beginner divers. Uh, beginner dives, if you want to go and have a amazing interaction with uh, like larger underwater wildlife and feel pretty safe, uh, go to the rookeries in Anacapa. Yeah. Or you could do Santa Barbara Island. I've had better luck at Anacapa. But when you're in the water getting buzzed by sea lions for 30, 40 minutes underwater and those guys just want to play with you, and it's not the adults. It's the reason you go to a rookery is they're uh, young juveniles, you know, and they're just playing around and they're just dive bombing you and they blow bubbles. And if you spin, they'll spin. They'll do all these really cool things. Um, I need to go back to that dive. I used to love sea lions. I, I, you know, get in the water and play with them all the time. One time I saw probably 70 or 80 of them at the barge off Redondo one time. Oh, saw yeah. a video of that until one August. And this is when they're mating and the big bulls don't like anything in the water. At that time, and we were diving off Marineland. My friend Jeff and Claudette and I were doing a beach dive at Marineland. Oh, Claudette. Yeah. And, and we were coming back. We, we went out to do the platform went back when it was straight out from the cove. It's now over on the other side of the 120 reef. Is it really? Yeah. It got dragged twice by fishing boats. <laughs> they catch a net on, on the it hook? And just drag it. Oh, on a, on a net. Yeah. It ended up moving about probably, I think, 500 yards the first time and then maybe 50 feet the second time. And I have a. I'll tell when you're done. I'll tell a story about that thing. I almost died on that. <laughs> but uh, we were coming back from a dive there, and we were halfway back to the cove, and all of a sudden, <laughs> I, uh, the visibility wasn't great. But Claudette was on my right side, and Jeff was behind me, and all of a sudden, somebody grabs my tank and just swinging me around. And I thought it was Jeff playing a shark or something like that. Nah. But I had double one twenties on, and I thought, it, "Wow, he's stronger than I thought." I'm, I'm getting thrown around like a rag doll. So I turned to look at him, tell him to knock it off. And here's a big bull sea lion bit me in the elbow. And I had a little point-and-shoot camera on my wrist, and I just punched him to see if he'd let go. And fortunately, he did. And I grabbed my Whoa. elbow, and I'm telling Claudette, go up, go up. We get to the surface, and there's like four-foot swells that day. So I knew it was going to be a bad day all along. But uh, Jeff came up at the same time. He said all he heard was bite, blood, camera. <laughs> you can only hear between the swells. Oh, but okay. I was holding my elbow because I had a dry suit. And we got back on the beach, and it ended up, it broke skin. It, just the pressure, it broke skin. I had blood down my arm. Oh, but wow. it didn't poke a hole in my dry suit. It was just, I guess it was letting me know, but he didn't actually puncture the dry suit, which I was happy about. But he did break skin because he bit so hard. Jeez. But after that, I've, I've been a little more wary of sea lions. <laughs> well, the big bulls, I've heard stories where the big bulls get territorial. Right. In fact, and that, that same day to... I saw in the news, um, like a 12-year-old kid was uh, bitten by one in Malibu, and even a lifeguard got bitten in Ventura by one the same day. And was this they, in association with the red tide? Because I know they uh, no, do get poisoned. Yeah, the demoic acid poisoning, but this yeah. was just in August in mating season. Okay. And the dry suit I had was old, faded, and gray. And uh, Jeff said, you know, you look like a big sea lion. So he did a Photoshop thing uh, saying he was pro this big bull was protecting his girlfriend, Penny, who was after me. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, really you were putting the moves? <laughs> You got, but, some, you got some sea lion moves, huh, Phil? He photoshopped a picture of me that he took that day with my double 120s, and he made about a 50-foot full sea lion coming after me. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, he, th those guys are imposing. Yes. Especially um, even when you just see them when all they're doing is, and I read this before when I was a new diver, that even when you're with all the juveniles, usually there'll be one or two that kind of are the stallions of the group. They'll kind of guard the rest, and they'll come straight at you and blow bubbles. I said, if you turn and swim away, they'll chase you. If you go after them, they'll leave and you won't see them anymore. But if you just hold your ground, 
So I think, okay, he's fine. And then they'll just keep continuing to play with you. Oh, cool. And I tried that. It actually works. But when you see one coming at you and you see these big canine teeth, they look, you know, they look like German shepherds about to attack you or something. Oh, yeah. And they come blow bubbles right in your face. It's hard not to move, but you just kind of stand there and say, ah, you don't scare me, but you're shaking the whole time. Dude, especially if you don't know it's coming. Right. So that's, um, I think, the first time I did one of those sea lion dives. Uh, there was a couple divers that were just getting certified, right? So they finished their skills, and then they're out with the sea lions. And they, you know, I heard a couple screams, a little yelps <laughs> under the water. Like, oh, oh. It might have been me. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. So... Um, you ne- so you wouldn't get in the water with uh, with the the killer whales, huh? I wanted to, but I didn't. Yeah, I don't know. I like. I have uh, maybe a kind of engrandized view of what I saw. I think I would, but I don't know, man. When you're faced with it in that moment, mm-hmm. it would be really tough. Do you know uh, Bob Talbot, the guy who does the photographs of the big whale tail? And he, they use one of his yes. photos. Um, a lot of different things. He does. Uh, he used to live in Palos Verdes, and he had his boat. A couple slips down from mine at Cabrillo Marina, uh-huh. and I went out to Santa, San Clemente Island one time, and there were a lot of blue whales between Catalina and San Clemente, and we ended up only doing one dive that day because we were more excited about the blue whales, so we did that just to get it over with, went <laughs> back and just hung around the whales for a while, and I really wanted to get in the water with them, and my wife, Marilyn, my first wife, said, no, 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 you're, you're not going to get in there, just, just stay here. I was so disappointed because we had, you know, out there 60 at uh, San Clemente's blue water, great visibility. Yeah. I thought, I can actually see the whole whale. This would be great. I've never seen a whale underwater, but she wouldn't let me do it. I got back to the marina, and Bob was there, and we were talking about it. And he said, you know what you should have done? Put a lanyard on your camera, put it on your wrist, get in the water, get some great shots, get footage, get everything you can. And that way, when they do hit you with a fluke and kill you, your wife can retrieve your camera. <laughs> exactly. Put a float on it. Uh, you know what, though? Like, I don't think... I don't think I would get in the water with a blue whale without a, a DPV just because one flick of their tail and yeah. they're gone, man. Yeah. They're so fast. Yeah, they're um, the largest animal that ever lived. And even though you see them, you think, oh, this is so great. They're still, you know, they outweigh you a little bit. Oh, 100%. They, they wouldn't even they, know if they hit you. They, yeah, they would accidentally kill you and yeah. not even realize like, it happened. You know, trying to beat the train to the crossing or go out in front of a container ship or something. They, they wouldn't even know that they killed you. 100%. And, you know... They just their their scope of the world is different. Right. We you know they travel oceans like they're amazing creatures in that sense. I remember we were out doing um, a shark dive, uh, just chilling in the channel, and it's like one of those weird calm days where it's all quiet on the water and you're just killing and we're all just kind of waiting hoping a shark will show up, and all of a sudden, you know you hear those those rumbling breath out of nowhere and everybody looks to the sound. And this whale comes out, or has come out, and it just goes and goes and goes. Like, it's just keep going, and we're like, that must be a blue whale. And sure enough, fluked, big old tail, down, didn't see him again. They are incredibly loud. Yeah, incredibly loud, and came out of nowhere. Like, he must have come up from who knows how far, and he went down, and we never saw him again that day. There's a few videos on YouTube where they come up and jump. And smash sailboats before. You know, people oh, that's terrifying! Them. Every time they come into Redondo, people will get out there in their paddle boards, small boats, everything to see them. And it's almost like they're a minefield. They have to navigate that, and they'll come up just to get a breath of air, and there'll be fifty people around them. Oh, I have uh, I have a video. I was out with Scott, and uh, there was a humpback, which is at the time. I mean, we see them more and more now, but there was a humpback 
right out in front of the uh, canyon, right near the opening of King Harbor. And it was just doing dives on whatever was down below. And it must have had 20 or 30 paddleboarders and kayakers up around it. And I swear to God, one time he just threw his uh, tail up into the thing and just slapped it down to say, like, give me some space, fellas. Because he had maybe a window of 30 feet that he could come up in. Right. And these people were just hunting him down. Now, if you want to make the argument that that's a little evasive to the animal, where they're yeah. like, yeah, that, okay, fine. But if your engine's off and he can navigate away from you if they want to or she and... But at the same time, it's hard to tell people, you know, you shouldn't go out and look at this amazing thing that you'll never see again. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's a hard sell, right? Well, and I think there's a trade-off, too. I think when people when people have an amazing experience with a wild animal, they're more willing to advocate for that animal to other humans. Right. Um, I'm not a huge fan of aquariums. Uh, I was a... Now, I should say, as a kid... SeaWorld was my favorite place, man. We used to go all the time. And, you know, finding out that, can I mean, it, if you really think about it, it kind of makes sense. But finding out that these whales in captivity is so terrible for them, how they're pulled out of, you, you know, um, nature, how they're mixed pods and, you know, you're basically locked with somebody speaking a different language and how there's aggression between them and all these things. It's heartbreaking to find all that out, but I, I don't think I would love the ocean as much as I do now right. if I hadn't been, if that hadn't been so accessible right. to me. In you fact, know? if you look back on anything like even Jacques Rousseau. Oh, is, dude, is, the videos of their science oh, yeah. is like <laughs> but butchery, yeah, man. I mean, I mean, anyone who grew up in the 40s, 50s, 60s and became a diver probably did so because of Jacques Cousteau. Oh, 100%, yeah. If you look back at some of the stuff they did, like, you know, dynamiting blue holes so they could fit the boat in. <laughs> or, or yeah, where you're like, oh, we're doing science. We're just going to massacre 10 sharks, and right. they might make it onto the barbecue at the end of the night or something. Like, it's, like, crazy. Uh, but, I mean, you know, if one person's doing that, it might be fine in the beginning, but obviously, like, you can't continue like that. And I think, I think what I'm saying is, I think we've gotten a lot better at finding ways to do that. And I think actually the the gear and stuff for people and the uh, diving agencies that exist now. I mean, I know Patty is good. Uh, there's a lot of other good agencies worldwide uh, that help people get into diving safer and sooner, which is another great thing. Like the fact. I've been involved with certifying like 12 year olds. Like if I had been diving since I was 12, like oh, I, 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 it would have been life changing. Yeah. I didn't start until I was 30. And now I, I think, how did these people get 5,000 dives? I might have 5,000 if I'd done that. It, but it, Exactly. But I remember I grew up, like I said, I was an army brat and moved all over the world, Germany and Denver and Texas. But for the most part, I grew up in Southern California. Yeah. I was born in San Pedro and I lived most of my adult life there. But, uh, in fact, my uh, oldest brother was really into surfing, and I remember going to dive and surf when he bought his first surfboard. This is probably around 65 or 66. Oh, man. But I didn't, he threw me in the ocean. We were at Betts one day, and I didn't know how to swim. So he threw me in the ocean, and all I remember is about five or six years old. I remember going underwater, touching the bottom with my feet, and pushing off so I could get back up, got out, and then didn't go in the water for another three or four years. <laughs> in fact, it's so funny because I love diving. That's pretty much all I do is. It's just, I think about diving, I write about it, I take photos, and when I'm not diving, it's pretty much all I'm thinking about, yet my biggest fear is drowning. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's that's a a good good fear fear to have have if you're going to spend 
a lot of time underwater because it's the one way you can easily go. Right. In fact, even to this day, I, I don't like getting complacent, especially if you're doing something that's yep. life-threatening. And although, you know, the scuba is relatively safe. Nothing nothing bad has ever happened. You know, I had a bite and a sheep had bite my finger once. But an urchin's urchins are the most scary animals out there. <laughs> They'll <laughs> get you. I'm constantly watching my pressure gauge underwater. Yep. I'll, I'll look at it and then look at it again a minute later just to see if it's changed. Because I've, I've had uh, about four, about five buddies who have died underwater. And oh, wow. I don't know, a couple of them, I don't know what happened to them. They never found their bodies. But for the most part, it's running out of air. Are these tech guys? Um, some of them were. One wasn't. She was doing a dive at Catalina at Ship Rock. Yeah. And they were on the Sun Diver 2. And they went in and did the dive, came back up. And she was just a guest that day, so she wasn't on the roster. Oh, and they called she was the name, so, staff. Yeah, Laura Valker. Oh, yeah. And they went to Eagle Reef. And did a dive there and then realized she was missing. So they went back and looked for her and never did find her. Oh, but, that's uh, unfortunate. But she had a bad back. She would uh, get in the water and just lay down and relax underwater, just kind of chill out and not do anything, not swim. So they never did find her, but no telling where she was. Oh, God. I remember reading about that. I did not know her, um, but that was a really sad story. I know a lot of people who did know her. I mean, there are some very unfortunate tragedies, and complacency is the number one reason. Like, you're a guy who has thousands of dives. But I, I would say complacently, complacency can set in at multiple times. I think, like, right around the 60 dive range where people are like, oh, I'm no longer a beginner, and they get a little complacent then. I think when people get their dive master, they start to get a little more complacent. Their instructor, they get complacent. I always tell people, especially new divers on the scuba board, a couple people were talking about, you know, when do you get good at buoyancy and stuff? I said, you know what? At 100 dives, you, you're amazed at the stuff that you don't that you didn't know when you had 50 dives. At 500 dives, you think, wow, at 100 dives, I was an idiot. I didn't know all this stuff. At 1,000 dives, you think, I didn't know anything at 500 dives. I mean, just, you're always learning something. And like I said, I, my, I did a dive last Monday and did a back off the boat without my fins on. So you're always forgetting something. I, and that's the crazy thing, right? Uh you just there's no there's no predicting there's always like a random element at play and that's part of what makes it exciting and fun and awesome and why you can keep going and diving the same place over and over again you never know what's going to happen right. um, a lot of the dive accidents if you if you read the reports about the accidents nearly every one there's a few that were medical reasons but for the most part the ones that aren't medical reasons are user error yep it's stuff that could have been avoided it's not necessarily you're doing something stupid. You're just not paying attention. Or you're doing something out of the range that you should be doing. Or you're trying to do too many things at once. And people always say, well, I lost my buddy. Well, that's not a life-threatening thing to lose your buddy. If you're a trained diver, and most people are, you should know how to get to the surface and either get to the boat or get back to the shore without somebody swimming alongside you. Well, and I've probably said this on the podcast too many times already. Um, most... The most problematic thing for most people in diving is managing discomfort. Right. Uh, and losing your buddy underwater increases your discomfort. Some of the gear you wear is discomfort. And everybody has a threshold for how much discomfort they're willing to deal with before that discomfort starts to turn to panic. And I've known more than my share of divers who really shouldn't be divers. They can't dive without a buddy there to help them get their gear on or to help them underwater oh, or to tell them, we need to go up now that they have no idea even though they were certified they either weren't paying attention or 
once they got their card, they forgot all this stuff, but they could not make a dive without somebody there to take care of them. And a lot of people will go in places and hire a dive master to, to dive with them. And I said, you know, that's great if you want to see things and have somebody, but if you can't take care of yourself, you might want to consider another sport. Well, you're setting yourself up for a position where, I mean, it's not terribly hard to lose somebody on a dive. Right. It can happen. Especially Palos Verdes, like I said. you know, Visibility. We, we've yeah. got great, I mean, these. I would rather dive Palos Verdes than anywhere in California because of the vertebrate life. The reefs are beautiful. It's some great stuff. You just can't see it most of the time. So I always recommend people, if they want to come to California, try Catalina or Laguna. But if you want to see other things and you want to see a lot of things, Either go to some of the places like Carmel is a lot of good stuff in Northern California, but for Southern California, Channel Islands Point are great Loma, too. Yeah, and but if if you want to see invertebrates you're not going to see anywhere else, come to Palos Verdes. You, or you buy your not, book. Yeah, you may, you may <laughs> not see them. Well, this is, that was another thing. I was a guide to say where you can actually find some of the stuff that I photographed because I get comments. People see my photographs all the time. I still do dive reports after you know thirty years of diving, and people enjoy the photos that I take, and they always say, "Wow, I never see this stuff," and I always think. Well, I'm trying to show you where they are and how to look for them. But you got to, in fact, losing your fins can be a good thing because then you're not moving so much. Because a lot of this stuff is small. Or, like when I was a new diver, I always, I was in this rush. I had to get down. Oh, there's another rock there. Let's go over there. Oh, let's go to that rock now. And I, I would swim most of the time. And really, I didn't run, know why I was doing a lot of 30 minute dives because I was swimming constantly. Once I got a camera, all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's stuff right here. And so I, I could spend a dive in. Know, 10 or 15 feet and not move much during that entire dive now. Well, and if you find a good spot on a dive, you can, I mean, this is, this goes back to the diversity in a, in a given location. You can find little critters that you don't even know what they are. Right. That's one of the things I love too, is, um, I, you find, I mean, I'm, I would probably look at it and just be like, Oh, look, you know, underwater grass. And you're like, actually, <laughs> That's not that. It's this, and I can't even provide an example because right. I'm not on your level. But you almost have to speak Latin. It, yeah, exactly. It's like uh, you have to have the Latin name, or it's going to be a thingy. Well, like those are the two options. Yesterday we were diving off our friend Andy's boat off one of the pipes up in El Segundo. Oh yeah, how was that, by the way? Uh, it's, it was okay. It was a decent viz. The viz looked good yesterday. It was. It was okay. I just okay. posted a dive report this morning. It was. Uh, it was okay. Okay. But uh, we can there was uh, some pipes that either they dropped or abandoned while they were making the, the big pipe, the five mile um, outfall pipe. And they're in three different spots. And Andy had never dived there. He had the numbers for it, but hadn't dived. So this was the first for all of us. And there was a gray moon sponge on one of them. Mary spent her entire dive right there mm. because she found there's these little amphipods, Potoceras. I don't remember the second part of their name, but they mimic nudibranchs. There are these little, they look like little spiders basically with shells. And they're, the same color as Spanish shawls or the same color and spot patterns as Triofa Catalina nudibranchs, and they they mimic them so that they don't get eaten because they know most animals aren't going to eat nudibranchs because of the poison serrata. So what? they're protected just by mimicking the colors of nudibranchs. I've never even heard of this. How does this not come up? But I never see them because they're almost, to me, they're microscopic. I've, I've got a picture of one I got yesterday, a bycatch. I was taking a picture of a little worm. Oh, yeah. And he was next to it. But they're, she said she just looked on and saw a lot of them on this sponge. And she came up before I did, and Andy named the reef after her because she said she called it uh, Mary's Delight or something like that. Oh, she, said she just couldn't stop talking. <laughs> she came up speaking Latin, telling me what they were. Oh, my God. I couldn't really even imagine. But see, how do you 
that's the thing is like sometimes I in my my longest lens is a sixty millimeter. Yeah. I need to I need to bump up at some point. Well, that's what I was using yesterday. A sixty. I put a, a one point four teleconverter on it, which makes it basically eighty five. How but, do you like using teleconverters? Uh, they're plus and minuses. A lot of times they're great if you want to find something small. But then you see a giant sea bass. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, I got his face or you know, something like yeah, that. You can take a picture of the copepod parasite and, on his and face. And occasionally, I, I like my 105. It's it's a good quality lens, but you can't get anything more than if you're like two feet back, you can't get focus on it. So really, you, you almost have to do just whatever's right there, and you're almost limited. When I had a point and shoot, I had a you know a little wet lens. You could put a wide angle lens or something, which is great, but the quality wasn't quite as good. No. And the more I progressed, I wanted to get better at photos. I sort of I look back at my old photos and I cringe now, but I, I just want to keep progressing, getting the best photos I can. But you're so limited underwater. If you set up, you, all of a sudden you've got a macro lens and you see a giant sea bass, or you've got a wide angle lens and you go down to three feet visibility. Yeah, you got to pick. You got to almost choose your situation. Your what you're going to shoot before you know where where what you're going to shoot. And I, that is my biggest frustration with using a DSLR underwater. Hundred percent. Diving is like a box of chocolates. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that might be the best application of that quote outside of the movie. Um, so uh, with with that, have you tried wet lenses on uh, the? The SLR? No, I haven't. I had them on my. I had an old CNC point and shoot. Okay. Which was great. I like being able to swap lenses out, but I haven't tried them on on the big camera yet. But that might be a good idea because a lot of times we'll go down, even if we know what the visit is going to be, if we've done a dive earlier in the day, and we look for things, we'll find something that's either too small for what we have. Yeah. If we don't have a diopter on front, I've got a wet diopter that I'll use for really tiny things. Some things I don't even see. I'll take a picture and look at it. And go, oh. I didn't see that next to it, and then I'll try to find it again. It's a and, good strategy, actually. I've not, I haven't done that, but that's a good idea. I know uh, a couple of people have told me they'll, they'll take a diopter, and they have these little things they swing out of in front of the port. Right, and that's right. And they use it as a magnifying glass. They'll just look around with that for small things and then swing it in front and take a photo of them. Huh. I haven't tried that yet. But once I they, mean, I, is there any end to the amount of gear that you can get no, for underwater like cameras? anything about boating, diving, well, any sports, skiing, or anything like that, it's just the more you do it, the more you spend. It's just never ending. Oh, uh, see, yeah, that is that is something that I think is probably the the hardest part about. I want to have a boat. I want to have the freedom to just dive whenever I want, wherever I want. But oh, break out always, another thousand, yeah, man. They always tell you, especially with boating, you know, get the best best boat you can afford. Don't buy cheap and keep moving up. And I I've done that. I've had a couple boats that were you know fairly cheap, and I was working on them constantly. And we've had no pressure now for a little over 10 years. And it's getting to the point now where we're starting to work on it a lot. It's not as fun. But then when we go out on other boats, we appreciate our boat even more. Because when we first got the boat. You guys have a cool boat. Well, when we first got it, uh, or even before, uh, Mary Mary went on the boat. She was tired of the marine land. She was tired of getting knocked down in the rocks. What? She, she actually didn't like getting knocked down. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, weird. <laughs> And, well, plus I was, Did she grow up in a happy family where there was no abuse? Well, what, she, what, what's she, wrong with she her? She grew up in the desert. They didn't even have any oh, water. So. There you go. But uh, when they were doing construction of Terranea, I would put both of our gear in a wagon and carry it up and down the hill forward so she didn't have to do as much work. But still, Is that when you knew you were going to marry her? You're like, this I, I must be so. love? <laughs> well, when I met her, I, when she was a new diver, there was a, a group then called Dive Vets. They used oh, to yeah. have a website, and they would dive uh, Vets Park on Wednesday nights, and then on Saturday or Sunday they'd dive Marineland. And they always had this thing called Meet the Diver where they'd introduce one of the members of the group. 
And they did one about Mary, a little profile when she was a new diver and joined the group. And at the time I was single, but I was interested in marine life and the science of it. And they talked about how she would come out of the water jumping up and down about a crab that she saw. I said, wow, I want to meet someone like that. And then after a while, I had a few friends in dive vets and they weren't diving marine line yet, but they started diving it, uh, I guess around uh, probably 94 or 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. And in 2006, they showed up one Sunday and Mary was with them. And I showed my friend Jeff, said, oh, there's Mary Passage, the one I told you about. He says, well, go talk to her. And I said, oh, I'm too shy, I don't want to talk to you. And he actually physically pushed me over to her. <laughs> so I went and talked and she had some binders with photos that she downloaded from the internet so she could identify the animals underwater. And I was looking through her photos and half of them were mine. <laughs> and it turned really? out she, she knew who I was. I was like a celebrity to her and I, I was too shy to even talk to her. And so we talked for a while and then ended up the next weekend, she became my new dive buddy. I took her dive, diving at Marineland and couldn't get rid of her after that. That's too funny. Yeah, I kind wow. of stuck with her. <laughs> How cool. I mean, but that's, that's great. I it, mean, it's so much fun to have a dive buddy that is interested in the same things and you actually do the same things all the time and don't get tired of it. <laughs> well, and, and it's probably nice too because uh, you know she's going to bail on the dive very early. Like, she doesn't get out of bed and isn't comfortable, like, she's not going to go. <laughs> Although now she's more enthusiastic than I am sometimes. I'll get up now, and she'll say, we're going diving tomorrow no matter what. I say, okay, great. Next morning, we really have to go. <laughs> oh, my God. But too- she'll, we started off, when we first started diving together, I either held her hand or held her tank, and we stayed next to each other, and I'd point out things to her. She'd collect shells and things like that when we first started. Then after a while, she would just take off on her own. And just, I'd never see her. We'd see each other at the start of the dive, and then maybe once more during the dive. That's pretty cool. And, I mean, it's just, it's unusual to find somebody who is that enthusiastic. It is. The divers, dive buddies I had before, were, especially some of the tech divers, were so enthusiastic. Oh, you got to dive deeper. You got to see this. You got to see this. And it was fun. But... It was every dive was an adrenaline rush. It was never relaxing. Yeah. And then the problem with the adren- adrenaline rush things is you get tired of it after a while and you move on to the things. And that's what most of my buddies were doing. They would do tech dives for a few years and then just stop diving. Yeah. And now I'm I'm as excited about each dive I do now as I was when I was a new diver. Because you know, I I look for different things now. When I was a new diver, I was just excited to breathe underwater and swim from one rock to the next. And then once I started taking photography. Then I just wanted to find as many animals as I could. And now it's a challenge to try to get the best photo of something that I've gotten before. That is one thing that I think moving into photography is really helpful in enjoying. Is if you have a dive that would typically be boring, you can still practice your skill and do good at that. But then you get to the point where once you got your skills down, what do I do now? That's why you buy a new lens. Yeah, Duh. That's why I like <laughs> that's why I like hunters and photographers, because there's no end. There's nothing to stop them from diving. Yeah, you can be a hunter and dive the rest of your life because there's always something out there for you. Yeah, and same with a photographer. You don't always get good visibility, but there's always another challenge on each dive. Well, and that's that. I think that is one of the things that scuba suffers from a little bit is uh, team sports or competition sports. They have that that uh, payoff, right? There's a payoff built in. The win, the this, the that. And I think it's hard for some people to keep up with diving once there's not that reoccurring payoff. But like you say, when you're a hunter, either a lobster or fish, 
or if you're a photographer trying to make a capture of a photo, that's when you really still have a payoff. And that's when it's actually something that will keep you motivated, keep you into it. And the challenge is there. And not everybody gets that. And you also learn to appreciate the fact that you know you're not going to have a good dive every time. You're going to get skunked as you're hunting. You're not going to get a good photo or everything's out of focus when you get home, look at them. And it's, it's these, it makes the fun dives even better. Oh, yeah. But, but a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll go on trips to warm water places and they talk about how fun diving is. And I always think, diving isn't really fun. It's, it's work, but I enjoy it. Yeah. I can't remember the last fun dive I had. I think it might have been one where, you know, a big animal came up to you or I took a new diver out and they enjoyed it or something. I, I love diving. I'd, there's nothing I'd rather be doing. But I never really have fun anymore, but I still enjoy it. Well, and that's the weird thing. Like, it's nice to dive with people who are still learning because you kind of feed off them vicariously, which is right. great. And it's like anything else. If you take a newbie at anything and introduce them to things, you're excited. Well, since you being a teacher, you get to say, look, I, I can show you things that you'll enjoy the rest of your life. You're going to love this. And then once they get used to it, all of a sudden you're, doing, you're on the same level. You're, you're sharing things with each other. Yeah, it's almost like, hey, did you see that? Oh no, I hope you did. Oh man, I actually enjoy when Mary gets a good dive. When Mary, like yesterday, when she comes up and finds something that she's really excited about or gets a good photo, I'm really happy for her. She always says, "Yeah, but you're jealous now." I said, "Yeah, a little, but I'm still glad you found it." I can still enjoy <laughs> you being while I keep my jealousy down. I, I can enjoy your glory. That's fine. We did a, a dive at Marineland one time, and I got a picture of a a, a little red octopus just crawling around, and, and it was okay. And then I saw a manis shrimp that was just walking around. I got some good photos of a manis shrimp one time. And she got one that was defensive. It rolled up in a little ball like a pill bug. Oh, no way. And it was, it was sandy on the bottom. It swept around. There was a lot of sand in the photo. There wasn't much color because it rolled up. And we were in the LA, LA uh, Underwater Photo Society, and she got first place for her photo. Ah. And my photo, which is a lot better, <laughs> <laughs> colorful, came in third. And this sounds a little jealous then, but I always call it, it's just, wow, your little balled up piece of junk one, huh? That's so funny. <laughs> but you know what, though? That's the weird thing. It, you, I find no matter how much I take photos, the experience that I have taking the photo and aiming for achieving a certain, you know, capture completely and utterly makes me unable to objectively judge my photo and how other people will perceive right. it. And I do the same thing. I'll get home and delete. Before I even start working, I delete half the stuff I shot on the dive because it's either a little out of focus or it's a lot out of focus. Or I think, why did I point straight down on that? What was I thinking? Yeah. What was what was I even trying to take a photo yeah. of? Her? I just saw something. It's like, I spend all this money that I don't have to get a better camera. And I take point and shoot type photos. It's like, what are you doing? Don't don't do that. Oh, it's so brutal. But you know, I still every dive I, I come back and I'll delete half the photos. Then I'll work on them and then delete half of those and then go through them again, cut a few more out, and then post what I think are the halfway decent ones. Uh, listen, man, you make great stuff. Where so for people who are listening and they want to see some of the stuff, where would you recommend them checking out some of your work? Uh, well, the only book I have so far is The Diving the Palos Verdes Peninsula. It's available on Amazon. Um, I post my dive reports on Diver.net, Scuba Board, Orange County List, Dive Bums, and uh, used to have a blog, but it, the blog died. But uh, mostly I just, most people don't know me. They'll, like I said, some people come and go, are you Max Bottom Time? 
and that was my handle on the internet. But I don't really post as much about me. I just want to promote local diving and the amount of life we have. And so I tell people, you know, do these dives, climb up down these cliffs, or go out on the giant stride, or you know, just there's local boats that'll dive Palos Verdes. Yeah. If you can do those or get in the water anywhere, it's work, but it's worth it. You'll see stuff that you won't see at Catalina. Hundred percent. And especially on good days, you're going to really appreciate the visibility. But even if it's bad visibility, if you're looking at small stuff, some of the reefs off Palos Verdes are just incredible that you can look and find small fish or even rockfish and octopus, moray eels, things like that that you'll see other places. But they look so out of just out of proportion when you all see life all around the reef, not just like you go to see a, a moray eel singing his head out of a hole. But all of a sudden, if you look around that hole, there's all kinds of life. Yeah. So. One more, one more question, or I mean, let me just ask. You also have an Instagram for the kids. I do. My uh, stepdaughter told me, you know, you should put your photos on Instagram. And I never She's did. She's right, by the she way. Right. I finally did, and all of a sudden, it's like, I heard from family members that I, I had lost contact with. Yeah. And it's like, they, they, my nieces and nephews were saying, wow, I love your photos. Good to see you on here. And it's like, oh, so we got in touch again. So that was nice. And uh, my, uh, I've got a sister who was living in Indiana. Now she's in Florida. She just signed up on my Instagram, started following me about two weeks ago. Yeah. I thought, oh, great. I haven't, I haven't heard from you in a long time. She goes, oh, yeah, our oldest brother died last January. I didn't know. Oh, Nobody told me. I said, whoa, thank you. <laughs> I am close s- thank you, and I'm sorry. My condolences. <laughs> and then, you know, she's not really good at details. So I said, how did he die? And I had to wait for about a week to find out. <laughs> but it turned out he was having surgery, had kidney failure or something. But uh, I didn't even know he died until six months afterwards. <laughs> Oh my gosh! But that's that's what Instagram will do for you. I'm glad I'm not on Facebook. I hear horrible, more horrible things. Well, <laughs> Facebook wars is a real thing. Well, Mary has a Facebook page because she wants to post her stuff for other people, who, other photographers. You need to get on Facebook and post your stuff. And the reason I didn't do it, there's there's so many people. I said, you know, I don't care what people had for dinner the night before. I don't need to see this crap. And a friend of ours says, oh, they don't do that anymore. And so I would look on Facebook. Yeah, they, they do, do worse. They do worse stuff now. <laughs> I, I don't really need to see people's butts on their selfies and stuff or you know, see what they had for me. Phil, who or... are you following on Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but your your Instagram handle, if somebody quickly wants to click, click uh, over and check it out. I believe it's Pacific Coast 101. Pacific Coast 101. Okay, well, we've been talking for over two hours, man. Wow. That was, it went by fast, right? It went, went past those 10 minutes that I thought we would. Hey, exactly. <laughs> you were like, but what are we going to talk about after 10 minutes? And I've told you everything I know. Nope. Two hours later. <laughs> what I should say is uh, about Palos Verdes, <laughs> the whole start of this anyway. Of course. That there are some beautiful sites in Palos Verdes. Anywhere from just off off Long Beach and San Pedro, there's a lot of nice reefs there. And especially off, off San Pedro, there's a lot of good wrecks. If you go out Huntington Flats, there's shipwrecks with, you know, Matridiums, Moray Eels. Wolfields out there, a lot of a lot of different animals, and then inshore you can beach dive anywhere you can get to the water from Cabrillo Beach, White Point, any of these goat trails, vets, anywhere you can get in, you'll find something. It, and some of the dives are easy, like Chart House from Redondo, is a fairly easy dive. You walk in next to the break wall and you dive to the break wall. Yep. It's one of the easier dives. Cabrillo Beach is probably the easiest beach dive in California, but the visibility is usually bad there. But if you get one of those days where it's flat and there's good visibility. There's even nice there's a, an old shipwreck in the kelp there. It's not much left of it, but it's a lot of metal with little holes and stuff in it, and the fish swim in and out of it. And there's it's shallow, it's no deeper than about 45 feet, a long way from shore. But you can go out and go out there and drop down and just make your way back and walk out because the waves aren't usually big there. It's yeah. nice flat sand. 
You walk out, there's restrooms and outdoor showers right there and grass so you can shower off a year, walk to your car and not be covered in sand like you do at Laguna. Well, you know, I, I, I definitely, when I put this up, I'll share a lot of this stuff because I think once people see the stuff that you've captured yourself on your dives, they're going to be inspired to go and actually walk down some of these ridiculous go trails and climb through some dirty vids. I did a night dive at Flat Rock one time and we were walking down the trail and there's one section of it that's about four to six inches wide uh-huh. and a drop off on either side. It's really scary. But in the daytime, it's not so bad. We were doing it at night and I was on that one section just being careful, just shuffling my feet so I didn't fall off. And all of a sudden, my weight belt fell down to my ankles. Oh, <laughs> and I thought, no. And you can't just stop and put anything down. So I had to actually reach down and pull it up without falling off the cliff on either side. Oh, my God. Well, man. That is, uh, I think we're going to stop it off there. I'll post stuff. And uh, thank you so much for coming in. This was fantastic, Ben. All right. Thank and, you, I, you know, I, I mean it when I say that uh, I think you've done a lot for the dive community here in SoCal. I, I'm speaking from personal experience. And I think uh, this book and number two, which is hopefully coming out in the near future, it is doing more to get people involved with diving. And I think that's fantastic. I, I do. It's, it's kind of like... When I first started diving, it wasn't a secret spot. Just I was just exploring things that weren't in print anywhere. Anytime I'd find anywhere to get in the water, a goat trail that went down to the water, if there was kelp or rocks, I had to do it. So yeah. I would just go down and do a lot. It's a lot of work, but I found that some of these are really worth it. Well, there's a lot of stuff to see, even near shore. You can walk down, since you get past the urchins and near shore, there's all kinds of fish and animals that you've never seen, octopus right in five feet of water. And, in fact, one time we found a huge octopus at Marineland in about three feet of water right along the shore. And it, it's amazing the stuff you can see that you'll never see unless you actually get out and do the little work to get to it. But, Dude, I love your stoke. You're just stoked about diving, and I love it. Uh, this has been great. Thanks again, and uh, you know, I look forward to the next post. 